This is Audible. How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren Chapter 14 How to Read Imaginative Literature So far, this book has been concerned with only half the reading that most people do. Even that is too liberal an estimate. Probably the greater part of anybody's reading time is spent on newspapers and magazines, and on things that have to be read in connection with one's job. And so far as books are concerned, most of us read more fiction than non-fiction. Furthermore, of the non-fiction books, the most popular are those that, like newspapers and magazines, deal journalistically with matters of contemporary interest. We have not deceived you about the rules set forth in the preceding chapters. Before undertaking to discuss them in detail, we explained that we would have to limit ourselves to the business of reading serious non-fiction books. To have expounded the rules for reading imaginative and expository literature at the same time would have been confusing. But now we cannot ignore the other types of reading any longer. Before embarking on the task, we want to emphasize one rather strange paradox. The problem of knowing how to read imaginative literature is inherently much more difficult than the problem of knowing how to read expository books. Nevertheless, it seems to be a fact that such skill is more widely possessed than the art of reading science and philosophy, politics, economics, and history. How can this be true? It may be, of course, that people deceive themselves about their ability to read novels intelligently. From our teaching experience, we know how tongue-tied people become when asked to say what they liked about a novel. That they enjoyed it is perfectly clear to them, but they cannot give much of an account of their enjoyment or tell what the book contained that caused them pleasure. This might indicate that people can be good readers of fiction without being good critics. We suspect this is, at best, a half-truth. A critical reading of anything depends upon the fullness of one's apprehension. Those who cannot say what they like about a novel probably have not read it below its most obvious surfaces. However, there's more to the paradox than that. Imaginative literature primarily pleases rather than teaches. It is much easier to be pleased than taught, but much harder to know why one is pleased. Beauty is harder to analyze than truth. To make this point clear would require an extensive analysis of aesthetic appreciation. We cannot undertake that here. We can, however, give you some advice about how to read imaginative literature. We will proceed first by the way of negation, stating the obvious don'ts instead of the constructive rules. Next, we will proceed by the way of analogy, briefly translating the rules for reading non-fiction into their equivalents for reading fiction. Finally, in the next chapter, we will proceed to examine the problems of reading specific types of imaginative literature, namely novels, plays, and lyric poems. How Not to Read Imaginative Literature In order to proceed by the way of negation, it is first of all necessary to grasp the basic differences between expository and imaginative literature. These differences will explain why we cannot read a novel as if it were a philosophical argument, or a lyric as if it were a mathematical demonstration. The most obvious difference, already mentioned, relates to the purposes of the two kinds of writing. Expository books try to convey knowledge, knowledge about experiences that the reader has had or could have. 
imaginative ones try to communicate an experience itself, one that the reader can have or share only by reading, and if they succeed, they give the reader something to be enjoyed. Because of their diverse intentions, the two sorts of work appeal differently to the intellect and the imagination. We experience things through the exercise of our senses and imagination. To know anything, we must use our powers of judgment and reasoning, which are intellectual. This does not mean that we can think without using our imagination, or that sense experience is ever wholly divorced from rational insight or reflection. The matter is only one of emphasis. Fiction appeals primarily to the imagination. That is one reason for calling it imaginative literature, in contrast to science and philosophy which are intellectual. This fact about imaginative literature leads to what is probably the most important of the negative injunctions we want to suggest. Don't try to resist the effect that a work of imaginative literature has on you. We have discussed at length the importance of reading actively. This is true of all books, but it is true in quite different ways of expository works and of poetry. The reader of the former should be like a bird of prey, constantly alert, always ready to pounce. The kind of activity that is appropriate in reading poetry and fiction is not the same. It is a sort of passive action, if we may be allowed the expression, or better, active passion. We must act in such a way when reading a story that we let it act on us. We must allow it to move us. We must let it do whatever work it wants to do on us. We must somehow make ourselves open to it. We owe much to the expository literature, the philosophy, science, mathematics, that has shaped the real world in which we live. But we could not live in this world if we were not able from time to time to get away from it. We do not mean that imaginative literature is always or essentially escapist. In the ordinary sense of that term, the idea is contemptible. If we must escape from reality, it should be to a deeper or greater reality. This is the reality of our inner life, of our own unique vision of the world. To discover this reality makes us happy. The experience is deeply satisfying to some part of ourselves we do not ordinarily touch. In any event, the rules of reading a great work of literary art should have as an end or goal just such a profound experience. The rules should clear away all that stops us from feeling as deeply as we possibly can. The basic difference between expository and imaginative literature leads to another difference. Because of their radically diverse aims, these two kinds of writing necessarily use language differently. The imaginative writer tries to maximize the latent ambiguities of words in order thereby to gain all the richness and force that is inherent in their multiple meanings. He uses metaphors as the units of his construction, just as the logical writer uses words sharpened to a single meaning. What Dante said of the Divine Comedy, that it must be read as having several distinct though related meanings, generally applies to poetry and fiction. 
the logic of expository writing aims at an ideal of unambiguous explicitness. Nothing should be left between the lines. Everything that is relevant and statable should be said as explicitly and clearly as possible. In contrast, imaginative writing relies as much upon what is implied as upon what is said. The multiplication of metaphors puts almost more content between the lines than in the words that compose them. The whole poem or story says something that none of its words say or can say. From this fact we obtain another negative injunction. Don't look for terms, propositions, and arguments in imaginative literature. Such things are logical, not poetic devices. In poetry and in drama, the poet Mark Van Doren once observed, statement is one of the obscurer mediums. What a lyric poem states, for instance, cannot be found in any of its sentences, and the whole, comprising all its words in their relations to and reactions upon each other, says something that can never be confined within the straitjacket of propositions. However, imaginative literature contains elements that are analogous to terms, propositions, and arguments, and we will discuss them in a moment. Of course we can learn from imaginative literature, from poems and stories, and especially perhaps plays, but not in the same ways we are taught by scientific and philosophical books. We learn from experience, the experience that we have in the course of our daily lives. So too we can learn from the vicarious or artistically created experiences that fiction produces in our imagination. In this sense, poems and stories teach as well as please. But the sense in which science and philosophy teach us is different. Expository works do not provide us with novel experiences. They comment on such experiences as we already have or can get. That is why it seems right to say that expository books teach primarily, while imaginative books teach only derivatively, by creating experiences from which we can learn. In order to learn from such books, we have to do our own thinking about experience. In order to learn from scientists and philosophers, we must first try to understand the thinking they have done. Finally, one last negative rule. Don't criticize fiction by the standards of truth and consistency that properly apply to communication of knowledge. The truth of a good story is its verisimilitude, its intrinsic probability or plausibility. It must be a likely story but it need not describe the facts of life or society in a manner that is verifiable by experiment or research. Centuries ago, Aristotle remarked that the standard of correctness is not the same in poetry as in politics, or in physics or psychology for that matter. Technical inaccuracies about anatomy or errors in geography or history should be criticized when the book in which they occur offers itself as a treatise on those subjects. But misstatements of fact do not mar a story if its teller succeeds in surrounding them with plausibility. When we read history, we want the truth in some sense, and we have a right to complain if we do not get it. When we read a novel, we want a story that must be true only in the sense that it could have happened, 
in the world of characters and events that the novelist has created and recreated in us. What do we do with a philosophical book once we have read it and understood it? We test it against the common experience that was its original inspiration and that is its only excuse for being. We say, is this true? Have we felt this? Have we always thought this without realizing it? Is this obvious now, though it was not previously? Complicated as the author's theory or explanation may be, is it actually simpler than the chaotic ideas and opinions we had about this subject before? If we can answer most of these questions in the affirmative, then we are bound by the community of understanding that is between ourselves and the author. When we understand and do not disagree, we must say, this is our common sense of the matter. We have tested your theory and found it correct. Not so with poetry. We cannot test Othello, say, against our own experience, unless we too are Moors and wedded to Venetian ladies whom we suspect of treachery. But even if this were so, Othello is not every Moor, and Desdemona is not every Venetian lady and most such couples would have the good fortune not to know an Iago. In fact, all but one would be so fortunate. Othello, the character as well as the play, is unique. General Rules for Reading Imaginative Literature To make the don'ts discussed in the last section more helpful, they must be supplemented by constructive suggestions. These suggestions can be developed by analogy, from the rules of reading expository works. There are, as we have seen, three groups of such rules. The first group consists of rules for discovering the unity and part-whole structure. The second consists of rules for identifying and interpreting the book's component terms, propositions, and arguments. The third consists of rules for criticizing the author's doctrine so that we can reach intelligent agreement or disagreement with him. We call these three groups of rules structural, interpretive, and critical. By analogy, we can find similar sets of rules to guide us in reading poems, novels, and plays. First, we can translate the structural rules, the rules of outlining, into their fictional analogues as follows. 1. You must classify a work of imaginative literature according to its kind. A lyric tells its story primarily in terms of a single emotional experience, whereas novels and plays have much more complicated plots, involving many characters, their actions and their reactions upon one another, as well as the emotions they suffer in the process. Everyone knows, furthermore, that a play differs from a novel by reason of the fact that it narrates entirely by means of actions and speeches. There are some interesting exceptions to this, which we will mention later. The playwright can never speak in his own person, as the novelist can, and frequently does, in the course of a novel. All of these differences in manner of writing call for differences in the reader's receptivity. Therefore, you should recognize at once the kind of fiction you are reading. 2. You must grasp the unity of the whole work. Whether you have done this or not can be tested by whether you are able to express that unity in a sentence or two. The unity of an expository work resides ultimately in the main problem that it tries to solve. Hence, its unity can be stated by the formulation of this question, or by the propositions that answer it. The unity of fiction 
is also connected with the problem the author has faced. But we have seen that that problem is the attempt to convey a concrete experience. And so the unity of a story is always in its plot. You have not grasped the whole story until you can summarize its plot in a brief narration, not a proposition or an argument. Therein lies its unity. Note that there is no real contradiction here between what we have just said about the unity of plot and what we have said about the uniqueness of the language of a fictional work. Even a lyric has a plot in the sense in which we are using the term here. But the plot is not the concrete experience that is recreated in the reader by the work, be it lyric, play, or novel. It is only the framework of it, or perhaps the occasion of it. It stands for the unity of the work, which is properly in the experience itself, just as the logical summation of the meaning of an expository work stands for the argument of the whole. 3. You must not only reduce the whole to its simplest unity, but you must also discover how that whole is constructed out of all its parts. The parts of an expository book are concerned with parts of the whole problem, the partial solutions contributing to the solution of the whole. The parts of fiction are the various steps that the author takes to develop his plot, the details of characterization and incident. The way in which the parts are arranged differs in the two cases. In science and philosophy, they must be ordered logically. In the story, the parts must somehow fit into a temporal scheme, a progress from a beginning through the middle to its end. To know the structure of a narrative, you must know where it begins, which is not necessarily on the first page, of course, what it goes through, and where it comes out at. You must know the various crises that lead up to the climax, where and how the climax occurs, and what happens in the aftermath. By aftermath, we do not mean what happens after the story is over. Nobody can know that. We mean only what happens within the narrative after the climax has occurred. An important consequence follows from the points we have just made. The parts or sub-holes of an expository book are more likely to be independently readable than the parts of fiction. Euclid published his elements in thirteen parts, or books as he called them, and the first of them can be read by itself. That is more or less the case with every well-organized expository book. Its sections or chapters, taken separately or in subgroups, make sense. But the chapters of a novel, the acts of a play, or the verses of a lyric often become relatively meaningless when wrenched from the whole. Second, what are the interpretive rules for reading fiction? Our prior consideration of the difference between a poetic and a logical use of language prepares us to make a translation of the rules that direct us to find the terms, the propositions, and the arguments. We know we should not do that, but we must do something analogous to it. 1. The elements of fiction are its episodes and incidents, its characters and their thoughts, speeches, feelings, and actions. Each of these is an element in the world the author creates. By manipulating these elements, the author tells his story. They are like the terms in logical discourse. Just as you must come to terms with an expository writer, 
So here you must become acquainted with the details of incident and characterization. You have not grasped a story until you are familiar with its characters, until you have lived through its events. 2. Terms are connected in propositions. The elements of fiction are connected by the total scene or background against which they stand out in relief. The imaginative writer, we have seen, creates a world in which his characters live, move, and have their being. The fictional analog of the rule that directs you to find the author's propositions can, therefore, be stated as follows. Become at home in this imaginary world. Know it as if you were an observer on the scene. Become a member of its population, willing to befriend its characters, and able to participate in its happenings by sympathetic insight, as you would do in the actions and sufferings of a friend. If you can do this, the elements of fiction will cease to be so many isolated pawns moved about mechanically on a chessboard. You will have found the connections that vitalize them into members of a living society. 3. If there is any motion in an expository book, it is the movement of the argument, a logical transition from evidences and reasons to the conclusions they support. In the reading of such books, it is necessary to follow the argument. Hence, after you have discovered its terms and propositions, you are called upon to analyze its reasoning. There is an analogous last step in the interpretive reading of fiction. You have become acquainted with the characters. You have joined them in the imaginary world wherein they dwell, consented to the laws of their society, breathed its air, tasted its food, traveled its highways. Now you must follow them through their adventures. The scene or background, the social setting, is, like the proposition, a kind of static connection of the elements of fiction. The unraveling of the plot, like the arguments or reasoning, is the dynamic connection. Aristotle said that plot is the soul of a story. It is its life. To read a story well, you must have your finger on the pulse of the narrative, be sensitive to its very beat. Before leaving these fictional equivalents for the interpretive rules of reading, we must caution you not to examine the analogy too closely. An analogy of this sort is like a metaphor that will disintegrate if you press it too hard. The three steps we have suggested outline the way in which one becomes progressively aware of the artistic achievement of an imaginative writer. Far from spoiling your enjoyment of a novel or play, they should enable you to enrich your pleasure by knowing intimately the sources of your delight. You will not only know what you like, but also why you like it. One other caution. The foregoing rules apply mainly to novels and plays. To the extent that lyric poems have some narrative line, they apply to lyrics also. But the rules do not cease to apply to non-narrative lyrics, although the connection is much less close. A lyric is the representation of a concrete experience, just like a long story, and it attempts to recreate that experience in the reader. There is a beginning, middle, and end of even the shortest lyric just as there is a temporal sequence in any experience, no matter how brief and fleeting. And though the cast of characters may be very small in a short lyric, there is always at least one character, namely the speaker of the poem.
third and last, what are the critical rules for reading fiction? You may remember that we distinguished in the case of expository works between the general maxims governing criticism and a number of particular points, specific critical remarks. With respect to the general maxims, the analogy can be sufficiently drawn by one translation. Where, in the case of expository works, the advice was not to criticize a book, not to say you agree or disagree, until you can first say you understand, so here the maxim is, don't criticize imaginative writing until you fully appreciate what the author has tried to make you experience. There's an important corollary to this. The good reader of a story does not question the world that the author creates, the world that is recreated in himself. We must grant the artist his subject, his idea, his donné, said Henry James in The Art of Fiction. Our criticism is applied only to what he makes of it. That is, we must merely appreciate the fact that a writer sets his story in, say, Paris, and not object that it would have been better to set it in Minneapolis. But we have a right to criticize what he does with his Parisians and with the city itself. In other words, we must remember the obvious fact that we do not agree or disagree with fiction. We either like it or we do not. Our critical judgment in the case of expository books concerns their truth, whereas in criticizing belles lettres, as the word itself suggests, we consider chiefly their beauty. The beauty of any work of art is related to the pleasure it gives us when we know it well. Let us restate the maxims, then, in the following manner. Before you express your likes and dislikes, you must first be sure that you have made an honest effort to appreciate the work. By appreciation, we mean having the experience that the author tried to produce for you by working on your emotions and imagination. Thus, you cannot appreciate a novel by reading it passively. Indeed, as we have remarked, you must read it passionately, any more than you can understand a philosophical book that way. To achieve appreciation... As to achieve understanding, you must read actively, and that means performing all the acts of analytical reading that we have briefly outlined. After you have completed such a reading, you are competent to judge. Your first judgment will naturally be one of taste. You will say not only that you like or dislike the book, but also why. The reasons you give will, of course, have some critical relevance to the book itself, but in their first expression, they are more likely to be about you, your preferences and prejudices, than about the book. Hence, to complete the task of criticism, you must objectify your reactions by pointing to those things in the book that caused them. You must pass from saying what you like or dislike, and why, to saying what is good or bad about the book, and why. The better you can reflectively discern the causes of your pleasure in reading fiction or poetry, the nearer you will come to knowing the artistic virtues in the literary work itself. You will thus gradually develop a standard of criticism, and you will probably find a large company of men and women of similar taste to share your critical judgments. You may even discover, what we think is true, that good taste in literature 
is acquired by anyone who learns to read. Chapter 15 Suggestions for Reading Stories, Plays, and Poems The parallel rules for reading imaginative literature that were discussed in the last chapter were general ones, applying across the board to all kinds of imaginative literature, novels and stories, whether in prose or verse, including epics, plays, whether tragedies or comedies or something in between, and lyric poems, of whatever length or complexity. These rules being general must be adapted somewhat when they are applied to the different kinds of imaginative literature. In this chapter we want to suggest the adaptations that are required. We will have something particular to say about the reading of stories, plays, and lyric poems, and we will also include notes on the special problems presented by the reading of epic poems and the great Greek tragedies. Before proceeding to these matters, however, it is desirable to make some remarks about the last of the four questions that the active and demanding reader must ask of any book when that question is asked of a work of imaginative literature. You will recall that the first three questions are, first, what is the book about as a whole? Second, what is being said in detail and how? And third, is the book true in whole or part? The application of these three questions to imaginative literature was covered in the last chapter. The first question is answered when you are able to describe the unity of the plot of a story, play, or poem, plot being construed broadly to include the action or movement of a lyric poem as well as of a story. The second question is answered when you are able to discern the role that the various characters play and recount, in your own words, the key incidents and events in which they are involved. And the third question is answered when you're able to give a reasoned judgment about the poetical truth of the work. Is it a likely story? Does the work satisfy your heart and your mind? Do you appreciate the beauty of the work? In each case, can you say why? The fourth question is, what of it? In the case of expository books, an answer to this question implies some kind of action on your part. Action, here, does not always mean going out and doing something. We have suggested that that kind of action is an obligation for the reader when he agrees with a practical work, that is, agrees with the ends proposed, and accepts as appropriate the means by which the author says they can be attained. Action, in this sense, is not obligatory when the expository work is theoretical. There, mental action alone is required. But if you are convinced that such a book is true, in whole or part, then you must agree with its conclusions and if they imply some adjustment of your views of the subject, then you are more or less required to make those adjustments. Now, it is important to recognize that in the case of a work of imaginative literature, this fourth and final question must be interpreted quite differently. In a sense, the question is irrelevant to the reading of stories and poems. Strictly speaking, no action whatever is called for on your part when you have read a novel, play, or poem well, that is, analytically. You have discharged all of your responsibilities as a reader when you have applied the parallel rules of analytical reading to such works and answered the first three questions. We say strictly speaking because it is obvious that imaginative works have often led readers to act in various ways. Sometimes a story is a better way of getting a point across, be it a political, economic, or moral point, than an expository work making the same point. George Orwell's Animal Farm and his 1984 
are both powerful attacks on totalitarianism. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is an eloquent diatribe against the tyranny of technological progress. Alexander Solzhenitsyn's The First Circle tells us more about the petty cruelty and inhumanity of the Soviet bureaucracy than a hundred factual studies and reports. Such works have been banned and censored many times in the history of mankind, and the reason for that is clear. As E.B. White once remarked, A despot doesn't fear eloquent writers preaching freedom. He fears a drunken poet who may crack a joke that will take hold. Nevertheless, such practical consequences of the reading of stories and poems are not of the essence of the matter. Imaginative writings can lead to action, but they do not have to. They belong in the realm of fine art. A work of fine art is fine, not because it is refined or finished, but because it is an end, finis, Latin means end, in itself. It does not move toward some result beyond itself. It is, as Emerson said of beauty, its own excuse for being. Therefore, when it comes to applying this last question to works of imaginative literature, you should do so with caution. If you feel impelled because of a book you have read to go out and do something, ask yourself whether the book contains some implied statement that has produced this feeling. Poetry, properly speaking, is not the realm of statement, although many stories and poems have statements in them more or less deeply buried and it is quite right to take heed of them and to react to them. But you should remember that you are then taking heed of and reacting to something other than the story or poem itself. That subsists in its own right. To read it well, all you have to do is experience it. How to Read Stories The first piece of advice we would like to give you for reading a story is this. Read it quickly and with total immersion. Ideally, a story should be read at one sitting, although this is rarely possible for busy people with long novels. Nevertheless, the ideal should be approximated by compressing the reading of a good story into as short a time as feasible. Otherwise, you will forget what happened. The unity of the plot will escape you, and you will be lost. Some readers, when they really like a novel, want to savor it, to pause over it, to draw out the reading of it for as long as they can but in this case they are probably not so much reading the book as satisfying their more or less unconscious feelings about the events and the characters. We will return to that in a moment. Read quickly, we suggest, and with total immersion. We have indicated the importance of letting an imaginative book work on you. That is what we mean by the latter phrase. Let the characters into your mind and heart. Suspend your disbelief, if such it is, about the events. Do not disapprove of something a character does before you understand why he does it, if then. Try as hard as you can to live in his world, not in yours. There, the things he does may be quite understandable. And do not judge the world as a whole until you are sure that you have lived in it to the extent of your ability. Following this rule will allow you to answer the first question you should ask about any book. What is it about as a whole? Unless you read it quickly, you will fail to see the unity of the story. Unless you read intensely, you will fail to see the details. The terms of a story, as we have observed, are its characters and incidents. You must become acquainted with them and be able to sort them out. But here, a word of warning. 
To take War and Peace as an example, many readers start this great novel and are overwhelmed by the vast number of characters to whom they are introduced, especially since they all have strange-sounding names. They soon give up on the book in the belief that they will never be able to sort out all the complicated relationships to know who is who. This is true of any big novel, and if a novel is really good, we want it to be as big as possible. It does not always occur to such faint-hearted readers that exactly the same thing happens to them when they move to a new town or part of a town, when they go to a new school or job, or even when they arrive at a party. They do not give up in those circumstances. They know that after a short while individuals will begin to be visible in the mass, friends will emerge from the faceless crowd of fellow workers, fellow students, or fellow guests. We may not remember the names of everyone we met at a party, but we will recall the name of the man we talked to for an hour, or the girl with whom we made a date for the next evening, or the mother whose child goes to the same school as ours. The same thing happens in a novel. We should not expect to remember every character. Many of them are merely background persons, who are there only to set off the actions of the main characters. However, by the time we have finished War and Peace, or any big novel, we know who is important and we do not forget. Pierre, Andrew, Natasha, Princess Mary, Nicholas. The names are likely to come immediately to memory, although it may have been years since we read Tolstoy's book. We also, despite the plethora of incidents, soon learn what is important. Authors generally give a good deal of help in this respect. They do not want the reader to miss what is essential to the unfolding of the plot, so they flag it in various ways. But our point is that you should not be anxious if all is not clear from the beginning. Actually, it should not be clear then. A story is like life itself. In life we do not expect to understand events as they occur, at least with total clarity. But looking back on them, we do understand. So the reader of a story, looking back on it after he has finished it, understands the relation of events and the order of actions. All of this comes down to the same point. You must finish a story in order to be able to say that you have read it well. Paradoxically, however, a story ceases to be like life on its last page. Life goes on, but the story does not. Its characters have no vitality outside the book, and your imagination of what happens to them before the first page and after the last is only as good as the next reader's. Actually, all such speculations are meaningless. Preludes to Hamlet have been written, but they're ridiculous. We should not ask what happens to Pierre and Natasha after War and Peace ends. We are satisfied with Shakespeare's and Tolstoy's creations partly because they are limited in time. We need no more. The great majority of books that are read are stories of one kind or another. People who cannot read listen to stories. We even make them up for ourselves. Fiction seems to be a necessity for human beings. Why is this? One reason why fiction is a human necessity is that it satisfies many unconscious as well as conscious needs. It would be important if it only touched the conscious mind, as expository writing does. But fiction is important, too, because it also touches the unconscious. On the simplest level, and a discussion of this subject could be very complex, we like or dislike certain kinds of people more than others, without always being sure why. If, in a novel, such people are rewarded or punished, 
we may have stronger feelings either pro or con about the book than it merits artistically. For example, we are often pleased when a character in a novel inherits money, or otherwise comes into good fortune. However, this tends to be true only if the character is sympathetic, meaning that we can identify with him or her. We do not admit to ourselves that we would like to inherit the money. We merely say that we like the book. Perhaps we would all like to love more richly than we do. Many novels are about love. Most are, perhaps. And it gives us pleasure to identify with the loving characters. They are free, and we are not. But we may not want to admit this, for to do so might make us feel, consciously, that our own loves are inadequate. Again, almost everyone has some unconscious sadism and masochism in his makeup. These are often satisfied in novels, where we can identify with either the conqueror or victim, or even with both. In each case, we are prone to say simply that we like that kind of book, without specifying or really knowing why. Finally, we suspect that life as we know it is unjust. Why do good people suffer and bad ones prosper? We do not know, we cannot know. But the fact causes great anxiety in everyone. In stories, this chaotic and unpleasant situation is adjusted, and that is extremely satisfying to us. In stories, in novels and narrative poems and plays, justice usually does exist. People get what they deserve. The author, who is like a god to his characters, sees to it that they are rewarded or punished according to their true merit. In a good story, in a satisfying one, this is usually so, at least. One of the most irritating things about a bad story is that the people in it seem to be punished or rewarded with no rhyme or reason. The great storyteller makes no mistakes. He is able to convince us that justice, poetic justice we call it, has been done. This is true even of high tragedy. There, terrible things happen to good men. But we see that the hero, even if he does not wholly deserve his fate, at least comes to understand it. And we have a profound desire to share his understanding. If we only knew, then we could withstand whatever the world has in store for us. I Want to Know Why is the title of a story by Sherwood Anderson. It could be the title of many stories. The tragic hero does learn why, though often, of course, only after the ruin of his life. We can share his insight without sharing his suffering. Thus, in criticizing fiction, we must be careful to distinguish those books that satisfy our own particular unconscious needs, the ones that make us say, I like this book, although I don't really know why, from those that satisfy the deep unconscious needs of almost everybody. The latter are undoubtedly the great stories, the ones that live on and on for generations and centuries. As long as man is man, they will go on satisfying him, giving him something that he needs to have, a belief in justice and understanding, and the allaying of anxiety. We do not know, we cannot be sure, that the real world is good. But the world of a great story is somehow good. We want to live there as often and as long as we can. A note about epics.
Perhaps the most honored, but probably the least read books in the great tradition of the Western world, are the major epic poems, particularly the Iliad and Odyssey of Homer, Virgil's Aeneid, Dante's Divine Comedy, and Milton's Paradise Lost. This paradox requires some comment. Judging by the very small number that have been completed successfully in the past twenty-five hundred years, a long epic poem is apparently the most difficult thing a man can write. This is not for want of trying. Hundreds of epics have been begun, and some, for example Wordsworth's Prelude and Byron's Don Juan, have grown to extensive proportions without ever really being finished. So honor is due the poet who sticks to the task and completes it. Greater honor is due him if he produces a work that has the qualities of the five just mentioned, but they are certainly not easy to read. This is not only because they are written in verse, for in every case except that of Paradise Lost, prose translations are available to us. The difficulty seems rather to lie in their elevation, in their approach to their subject matter. Any of these major epics exerts enormous demands on the reader, demands of attention, of involvement, and of imagination. The effort required to read them is very great indeed. Most of us are not aware of the loss we suffer by not making that effort. For the rewards to be gained from a good reading, an analytical reading, as we should say, of these epics are at least as great as those to be gained from the reading of any other books, certainly any other works of fiction. Unfortunately, however, these rewards are not gained by readers who do less than a good job on these books. We hope that you'll take a stab at reading these five great epic poems, and that you will manage to get through all of them. We are certain you will not be disappointed if you do, and you will be able to enjoy a further satisfaction. Homer, Virgil, Dante, and Milton. They are the authors that every good poet, to say nothing of other writers, has read. Along with the Bible, they constitute the backbone of any serious reading program. How to Read Plays A play is fiction, a story, and insofar as that is true, it should be read like a story. Perhaps the reader has to be more active in creating the background, the world in which the characters live and move, for there is no description in plays such as abounds in novels. But the problems are essentially similar. However, there is one important difference. When you read a play, you are not reading a complete work. The complete play, the work that the author intended you to apprehend, is only apprehended when it is acted on a stage. Like music, which must be heard, a play lacks a physical dimension when we read it in a book. The reader must supply that dimension. The only way to do that is to make a pretense of seeing it acted. Therefore, once you have discovered what the play is about as a whole and in detail, and once you have answered the other questions you must ask about any story, then try directing the play. Imagine that you have half a dozen good actors before you, awaiting your commands. Tell them how to say this line, how to play that scene. Explain the importance of these few words, and how that action is the climax of the work. You'll have a lot of fun, and you'll learn a lot about the play. An example will show what we mean. In Hamlet, Act Two, Scene Two, Polonius announces to the king and queen that Hamlet is insane because of his love for Ophelia, who has spurned the prince's advances. The king and queen are doubtful, 
whereupon Polonius proposes that the king and he hide behind an arras in order to overhear a conversation between Hamlet and Ophelia. This proposal occurs in Act Two, Scene Two, at lines 160 to 170. Immediately thereafter, Hamlet enters, reading. His speeches to Polonius are enigmatic. As Polonius says, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. Later on, early in Act Three, Hamlet enters and delivers the famous soliloquy beginning, To be, or not to be, and then is interrupted by catching sight of Ophelia. He speaks to her quite reasonably for a time, but suddenly he cries, Aha! Are you honest? Act 3, Scene 1, Line 103. Now the question is, has Hamlet overheard Polonius say earlier that he and the king planned to spy on him? And did he perhaps also hear Polonius say that he would loose my daughter to him? If so, Hamlet's conversations with both Polonius and Ophelia would mean one thing. If he did not overhear the plotting, they would mean another. Shakespeare left no stage directions. The reader, or director, must decide for himself. Your own decision will be central to your understanding of the play. Many of Shakespeare's plays require this kind of activity on the part of the reader. Our point is that it is always desirable, no matter how explicit the playwright was in telling us exactly what we should expect to see. We cannot question what we are to hear, since the play's words are before us. Probably you have not read a play really well until you have pretended to put it on the stage in this way. At best, you have given it only a partial reading. Earlier, we suggested that there were interesting exceptions to the rule that the playwright cannot speak directly to the reader as the author of a novel can and often does. Fielding and Tom Jones is an example of this direct addressing of the reader in one great novel. Two of these exceptions are separated by nearly twenty-five centuries of time. Aristophanes, the ancient Greek comic playwright, wrote the only examples of what is called old comedy that survive. From time to time in an Aristophanic play, and always at least once, the leading actor would step out of character, perhaps move forward toward the audience, and deliver a political speech that had nothing whatever to do with the action of the drama. It is felt that these speeches were expressions of the author's personal feelings. This is occasionally done nowadays. No useful artistic device is ever really lost, but perhaps not as effectively as Aristophanes did it. The other example is that of Shaw, who not only expected his plays to be acted, but also hoped that they would be read. He published them all, at least one, Heartbreak House, before it was ever acted, and accompanied the publication with long prefaces, in which he explained the meaning of the plays and told his readers how to understand them. He also included very extensive stage directions in the published versions. To read a Shavian play, without reading the preface Shaw wrote for it, is to turn one's back intentionally on an important aid to understanding. Again, other modern playwrights have imitated Shaw in this device, but never as effectively as he did. One other bit of advice may be helpful, particularly in reading Shakespeare. We have already suggested the importance of reading the plays through as nearly as possible at one sitting, in order to get a feeling for the whole. But since the plays are mostly in verse, and since the verse is more or less opaque in places, 
because of changes in the language that have occurred since 1600, it is often desirable to read a puzzling passage out loud. Read slowly, as if an audience were listening, and with expression, that is, try to make the words meaningful to you as you read them. This simple device will clear up many difficulties. Only after it has failed should you turn to the glossary or notes. A note about tragedy. Most plays are not worth reading. This, we think, is because they are incomplete. They were not meant to be read. They were meant to be acted. There are many great expository works and many great novels, stories, and lyric poems, but there are only a few great plays. However, those few, the tragedies of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the plays of Shakespeare, Moliere's comedies, the works of a very few moderns, are very great indeed, for they contain within them some of the deepest and richest insights men have ever expressed in words. Among these, Greek tragedy is probably the toughest nut to crack for beginning readers. For one thing, in the ancient world, three tragedies were presented at one time, the three often dealing with a common theme. But except in one case, the Oresteia of Aeschylus, only single plays or acts survive. For another, it is almost impossible to stage the plays mentally, since we know almost nothing about how the Greek directors did it. For still another, the plays often are based on stories that were well known to their audiences, but are known to us only through the plays. It is one thing to know the story of Oedipus, for example, as well as we know the story of George Washington and the Cherry Tree, and thus to view Sophocles' masterpiece as a commentary on a familiar tale. And it is quite another to see Oedipus Rex as the primary story and try to imagine the familiar tale that provided the background. Nevertheless, the plays are so powerful that they triumph over even these obstacles as well as others. It is important to read them well, for they not only can tell us much about life as we still live it, but they also form a kind of literary framework for many other plays written much later, for example, Racine's and O'Neill's. We have two bits of advice that may help. The first is to remember that the essence of tragedy is time or rather the lack of it. There is no problem in any Greek tragedy that could not have been solved if there had been enough time, but there is never enough. Decisions, choices have to be made in a moment. There is no time to think and weigh the consequences. And since even tragic heroes are fallible, especially fallible, perhaps, the decisions are wrong. It is easy for us to see what should have been done but would we have been able to see in time? That is the question you should always ask in reading any Greek tragedy. The second bit of advice is this. One thing we do know about the staging of Greek plays is that the tragic actors wore buskins on their feet that elevated them several inches above the ground. They also wore masks. But the members of the chorus did not wear buskins, though they sometimes wore masks. The comparison between the size of the tragic protagonists on the one hand and the members of the chorus on the other hand was thus highly significant. Therefore you should always imagine, when you read the words of the chorus, that the words are spoken by persons of your own stature, while the words spoken by the protagonists proceed from the mouths of giants.
from personages who did not only seem, but actually were, larger than life. How to read lyric poetry The simplest definition of poetry, in the somewhat limited sense implied by the title of this section, is that it is what poets write. That seems obvious enough, and yet there are those who would dispute the definition. Poetry, they hold, is a kind of spontaneous overflowing of the personality, which may be expressed in written words but may also take the form of physical action, or more or less musical sound, or even just feeling. There is something to this, of course, and poets have always recognized it. It is a very old notion that the poet reaches down deep into himself to produce his poems, that their place of origin is a mysterious well of creation within the mind or soul. In this sense of the term, poetry can be made by anyone at any time, in a kind of solitary sensitivity session. But although we admit that there is a kernel of truth in this definition, the meaning of the term that we will be employing in what follows is much narrower. Whatever may be the origin of the poetic impulse, poetry, for us, consists of words, and what is more, of words that are arranged in a more or less orderly and disciplined way. Other definitions of the term that similarly contain a kernel of truth are that poetry, again primarily lyric poetry, is not truly poetry unless it praises or unless it rouses to action, usually revolutionary, or unless it is written in rhyme, or unless it employs a specialized language that is called poetic diction. In that sentence we have intentionally mixed together some very modern and some very antiquated notions. Our point is that all of these definitions, and a dozen more that we might mention, are too narrow, just as the definition discussed in the last paragraph was too broad for us. Between such very broad and such very narrow definitions lies a central core that most people, if they were feeling reasonable about the matter, would admit was poetry. If we tried to state precisely what the central core consisted in, we would probably get into trouble, and so we will not try. Nevertheless, we are certain that you know what we mean. We are certain that nine times out of ten, or perhaps even ninety-nine times out of a hundred, you would agree with us that X was a poem and Y was not, and that is fully sufficient for our purposes in the following pages. Many people believe that they cannot read lyric poetry, especially modern poetry. They think it is often difficult, obscure, complex, and that it demands so much attention, so much work on their part, that it is not worthwhile. We would say two things. First, lyric poetry, even modern poetry, does not always demand as much work as you may think if you go about reading it in the right way. Second, it is often worth whatever effort you are willing to spend. We do not mean that you should not work on a poem. A good poem can be worked at, re-read, and thought about over and over for the rest of your life. You will never stop finding new things in it, new pleasures and delights, and also new ideas about yourself and the world. We mean that the initial task of bringing a poem close enough to you to work on it is not as hard as you may have believed. The first rule to follow in reading a lyric is to read it through without stopping, whether you think you understand it or not. This is the same rule that we have suggested for many different kinds of books, but it is more important for a poem than it is for a philosophical or scientific treatise, and even for a novel or play. 
In fact, the trouble so many people seem to have in reading poems, especially the difficult modern ones, stems from their unawareness of this first rule of reading them. When faced by a poem of T.S. Eliot or Dylan Thomas or some other obscure modern, they plunge in with a will, but are brought up short by the first line or stanza. They do not understand it immediately and in its entirety, and they think they should. They puzzle over the words, try to unwind the complicated skein of the syntax, and soon give up, concluding that, as they suspected, modern poetry is just too difficult for them. It is not only modern lyrics that are difficult. Many of the best poems in the language are complicated and involved in their language and thought. Besides, many apparently simple poems have immense complexity under the surface. But any good lyric poem has a unity. Unless we read all of it and all at once, we cannot comprehend its unity. We cannot discover, except possibly by accident, the basic feeling or experience that underlies it. In particular, the essence of a poem is almost never to be found in its first line or even in its first stanza. It is to be found only in the whole, and not conclusively in any part. The second rule for reading lyrics is this. Read the poem through again, but read it out loud. We have suggested this before in the case of poetic dramas like Shakespeare's. There it was helpful, here it is essential. You will find, as you read the poem out loud, that the very act of speaking the words forces you to understand them better. You cannot glide over a misunderstood phrase or line quite so easily if you are speaking it. Your ear is offended by misplaced emphasis that your eyes might miss. And the rhythm of the poem and its rhymes, if it has them, will help you to understand by making you place the emphasis where it belongs. Finally, you will be able to open yourself to the poem and let it work on you, as it should. In the reading of lyrics, these first two suggestions are more important than anything else. We think that if readers who believe they cannot read poems would obey these rules first, they would have little difficulty afterwards. For once you have apprehended a poem in its unity, even if this apprehension is vague, you can begin to ask it questions. And as with expository works, that is the secret of understanding. The questions you ask of an expository work are grammatical and logical. The questions you ask of a lyric are usually rhetorical, though they may also be syntactical. You do not come to terms with a poem, but you must discover the key words. You discover them not primarily by an act of grammatical discernment, however, but by an act of rhetorical discernment. Why do certain words pop out of the poem and stare you in the face? Is it because the rhythm marks them, or the rhyme, or are the words repeated? Do several stanzas seem to be about the same ideas? If so, do these ideas form any kind of sequence? Anything of this sort that you can discover will help your understanding. In most good lyrics, there is some kind of conflict, sometimes two antagonists, either individual people or images or ideas, are named, and then the conflict between them is described. If so, this is easy to discover. But often the conflict is only implied and not stated. For example, a large number of great lyric poems, perhaps even the majority of them, are about the conflict between love and time 
between life and death, between the beauty of transient things and the triumph of eternity. But these words may not be mentioned in the poem itself. It has been said that almost all of Shakespeare's sonnets are about the ravages of what he calls devouring time. It is clear that some of them are, for he explicitly says so again and again. When I have seen by time's fell hand defaced the rich proud cost of outworn buried age, he writes in the 64th sonnet, and lists other victories that time gains over all that man wishes were proof against it. Then he says, Ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate. The time will come and take my love away. There is no question what that sonnet is about. Similarly, with the famous 116th sonnet, which contains these lines, Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. But the almost equally famous 138th sonnet, which begins with the lines, When my love swears that she is made of truth, I do believe her, though I know she lies, is also about the conflict between love and time, although the word time appears nowhere in the poem. That you will see without much difficulty. Nor is there any difficulty in seeing that Marvell's celebrated lyric to his coy mistress is about the same subject, for he makes this clear right at the beginning. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness, lady, were no crime. We do not have all the time in the world, Marvell says, for at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Therefore he adjures his mistress, let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball, and tear our pleasures with rough strife, thorough the iron gates of life. Thus though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. It is perhaps a bit harder to see that the subject of you, Andrew Marvell, by Archibald MacLeish, is exactly the same. The poem begins, And here face down beneath the sun, And here upon earth's noonward height, To feel the always coming on, The always rising of the night. Thus MacLeish asks us to imagine someone, The poet, the speaker, the reader, As lying in the noonday sun, But all the same in the midst of that brightness and warmth, Aware of the earthly chill of dusk, he imagines the line of the shadow of the setting sun, of all the cumulative successive setting suns of history, moving across the world, across Persia and Baghdad. He feels Lebanon fade out and Crete, and Spain go under and the shore of Africa the gilded sand, and now the long light of the sea vanishes too, and he concludes, and here face downward in the sun, to feel how swift, how secretly, the shadow of the night comes on. The word time is not used in the poem, nor is there any mention of a lover. Nevertheless, the title reminds us of Marvell's lyric with its theme of 
had we but world enough and time. And thus the combination of the poem itself and its title invokes the same conflict between love or life and time that was the subject of the other poems we have considered here. One final piece of advice about reading lyric poems. In general, readers of such works feel that they must know more about the authors and their times than they really have to. We put much faith in commentaries, criticism, biographies. But this may be only because we doubt our own ability to read. Almost everyone can read any poem if he will go to work on it. Anything you discover about an author's life or times is valid and may be helpful. But a vast knowledge of the context of a poem is no guarantee that the poem itself will be understood. To be understood, it must be read, over and over. Reading any great lyric poem is a lifetime job. Not, of course, in the sense that it should go on and on throughout a lifetime, but rather that, as a great poem, it deserves many return visits. And during vacations from a given poem, we may learn more about it than we realize. Chapter 16 How to Read History History, like poetry, is a word of many meanings. In order for this chapter to be useful to you, we must come to terms with you about the word, that is, explain how we will be using it. First of all, there is the difference between history as fact and history as a written record of the facts. We are obviously here employing the term in the latter sense, since in our sense of read, you cannot read facts. But there are many kinds of written record that are called historical. A collection of documents pertaining to a certain event or period could be called a history of it. A transcription of an oral interview with a participant, or a collection of such transcriptions, could similarly be called a history of the event in which he or they participated. A work having quite a different intention, such as a personal diary or collection of letters, could be construed as being a history of the time. The word could be applied, and indeed has been applied, to almost every kind of writing that originated in a time period, or in the context of an event in which the reader was interested. The sense in which we use the word history in what follows is both narrower and broader than any of those. It is narrower because we want to restrict ourselves to essentially narrative accounts presented in a more or less formal manner of a period or event or series of events in the past. This is a traditional use of the term, and we do not apologize for it. Again, as with our definition of lyric poetry, we think you will agree with us that this is the ordinary meaning of the term, and we want to stick to the ordinary here. But our meaning is also broader than many of the definitions of the term that are current today. We think, although not all historians agree with us, that the essence of history is narration, that the last five letters of the word, story, help us to understand the basic meaning. Even a collection of documents, as a collection, tells a story. That story may not be explicit, that is, the historian may try not to arrange the documents in any meaningful order. But it is implicit in them whether they are ordered or not. Otherwise, we think the collection would not be called a history of its time. It is not important, however, whether all historians agree with us in our notion of what history is. There is a great deal of history of the kind we are discussing, and you will want to or have to read at least some of it. We will try to aid you in that task. The Elusiveness of Historical Facts 
Probably you have been a member of a jury, listening to the testimony about a simple matter of fact, such as an automobile accident. Or you may have been on a blue-ribbon jury, and have had to decide whether one person killed another or not. If you have done either, you know how difficult it is to reconstruct the past, even a single event in the past, from the memories of persons who actually saw it happen. A court concerns itself with events that have happened fairly recently and in the presence of living witnesses. In addition, there are stringent rules of evidence. A witness cannot suppose anything. He cannot guess or hypothecate or estimate, except under very carefully controlled conditions. And of course he is not supposed to lie. With all the careful rules of evidence and cross-examination besides, have you ever been absolutely sure, as a member of a jury, that you really knew what happened? The law assumes that you will not be absolutely sure. It assumes that there will always be some doubt in a juror's mind. As a matter of practice, in order that trials may be decided one way or the other, it says that the doubt must be reasonable if it is to be allowed to affect your judgment. The doubt must be, in other words, sufficient to trouble your conscience. A historian is concerned with events that occurred, most of them, a long time ago. All the witnesses to the events are usually dead. What evidence they give is not given in a courtroom, that is, it is not governed by stringent and careful rules. Such witnesses as there are often guess, hypothecate, estimate, assume, and suppose. We cannot see their faces in order to judge whether they are lying, if we ever really can know that about anybody. They are not cross-examined. And there is no guarantee whatever that they know what they're talking about. If, then, it is difficult to be sure that one knows about the truth of a relatively simple matter, such as is decided by a jury in a court of law, how much more difficult it is to know what really happened in history. A historical fact, though we may have a feeling of trust and solidity about the word, is one of the most elusive things in the world. Of course, about some kinds of historical fact we can be pretty certain. America was involved in a civil war that began with the firing on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, and ended with the surrender of General Lee to General Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865. Everyone agrees about those dates. It is not likely, though it is not totally impossible, that every American calendar was incorrect at that time. But how much have we learned if we know exactly when the Civil War started and when it ended? Indeed, those dates have been disputed, not on the grounds that the calendars were wrong, but that the war really started with the election of Lincoln in the fall of 1860 and ended with his assassination five days after Lee's surrender. Others have claimed that the war started even earlier, as much as five or ten or twenty years before 1861, and we know that it was still actually being fought in outlying parts of the United States, to which word had not yet come of the Northern Triumph, as late as May, June, and July, 1865. And there are those, too, who feel that the Civil War is not over yet, that it will never be over until black Americans are completely free and equal, or until the South manages to secede from the Union, or until the right of the federal government to control all the states is finally established and accepted by every American everywhere. At least we do know, one might say, that whether or not the firing on Fort Sumter started the Civil War, 
it did occur on April 12, 1861. That is true, within the limits of possibility we referred to before. But why was Sumter fired on? That is an obvious next question. And could war still have been avoided after the attack? If it had been, would we care that such and such an assault occurred on such and such a spring day more than a century ago? If we did not care, and we do not care about many attacks on forts that have doubtless occurred, but about which we know nothing whatever, would the firing on Sumter still be a significant historical fact? Theories of History We class history, the story of the past, more often under fiction than under science, if it must be affiliated with one or the other. If not, if history, that is, is allowed to rest somewhere in between the two main divisions of the kinds of books, then it is usually admitted that history is closer to fiction than to science. This does not mean that a historian makes up his facts like a poet or storyteller. However, we might get into trouble if we insisted too strongly that a writer of fiction makes up his facts. He creates a world, as we have said. But this new world is not totally different from our own. Indeed, it had better not be, and a poet is an ordinary man, with ordinary senses by and through which he has learned. He does not see things that we cannot see. He may see better or in a slightly different way. His characters use words that we use, otherwise we could not believe in them. It is only in dreams that human beings create really strange new worlds. Yet even in the most fantastic dream, the events and creatures of the imagination are made up out of elements of everyday experience. They are merely put together in strange new ways. A good historian does not, of course, make up the past. He considers himself responsibly bound by some concept or criterion of accuracy or facts. Nevertheless, it is important to remember that the historian must always make up something. He must either find a general pattern in or impose one on events or he must suppose that he knows why the persons in his story did the things they did. He may have a general theory or philosophy, such as that providence rules human affairs, and make his history fit that. Or he may abjure any such pattern, imposed, as it were, from the outside or above, and instead insist that he is merely reporting the real events that have occurred. But in that case, he is likely to be forced to assign causes for events and motivations for actions. It is essential to recognize which way the historian you are reading is operating. The only way to avoid taking either one or the other position is to assume that men do not do things for a purpose, or that the purpose, if it exists, is undiscoverable. In other words, that there is no pattern to history at all. Tolstoy had such a theory about history. He was not a historian, of course, he was a novelist. But many historians have held the same view, particularly in modern times. The causes of every human action, Tolstoy thought, were so manifold, so complex, and so deeply hidden in unconscious motivations, that it is impossible to know why anything ever happened. Because theories of history differ, and because a historian's theory affects his account of events, it is necessary to read more than one account of the history of an event or period if we want to understand it. Indeed, this is the first rule of reading history. And it is all the more important if the event in which we are interested has practical significance for us. It is probably of practical significance to all Americans 
that they know something about the history of the Civil War. We still live in the backwash of that great and sorry conflict. We live in a world it helped to make. But we cannot hope to understand it if we look at it through the eyes of only one man or one side or one faction of modern academic historians. The other day we opened a new Civil War history and noted that its author offered it as an impartial, objective history of the Civil War from the point of view of the South. The author appeared to be serious. Maybe he was. Maybe such a thing is possible. At any rate, we would admit that every narrative history has to be written from some point of view, but to get at the truth, we ought to look at it from more than one viewpoint. The Universal in History We are not always able to read more than one history of an event. When we are not, we must admit that we do not have much chance of learning the truth of the matter in question, of learning what really happened. However, that is not the only reason to read history. It might be claimed that only the professional historian, the man who is writing a history himself, is required to cross-examine his sources by exhaustively checking one against the other. He must leave no stone unturned if he is to know what he ought to know about his subject. We, as lay readers of history, stand somewhere between the professional historian on the one hand and the irresponsible amateur on the other hand, who reads history only for amusement. Let us take the example of Thucydides. You may be aware that he wrote the only major contemporary history of the Peloponnesian War at the end of the 5th century B.C. In a sense, there is nothing to check his work against. What, then, can we expect to learn from it? Greece is now a tiny country. A war that occurred there twenty-five centuries ago can have little real effect on our life today. Everyone who fought in it is long dead, and the specific things for which they fought are long dead, too. The victories are now meaningless, and the defeats without pain. The cities that were taken and lost have crumbled into dust. Indeed, if we stop to think of it, almost all that remains of the Peloponnesian War is Thucydides' account of it. Yet that account is still important. For Thucydides' story, we might as well use that word, has had an influence on the subsequent history of man. Leaders in later eras read Thucydides. When they found themselves in situations that even faintly approximated that of the tragically divided Greek city-states, they compared their own position to that of Athens or Sparta. They used Thucydides as an excuse and a justification, and even as a pattern of conduct. The result was that by ever so little, perhaps, but perceptibly, the history of the world was changed by the view held of a small portion of it by Thucydides in the 5th century B.C. Thus we read Thucydides not because he described perfectly what happened before he wrote his book, but because he, to a certain extent, determined what happened after. And we read him, strange as this may seem, to know what is happening now. Poetry is more philosophical than history, wrote Aristotle. By this he meant that poetry is more general, more universal. A good poem is true not only in its own time and place, but in all times and places. It has meaning and force for all men. History is not quite so universal as that. It is tied to events in a way that poetry is not. But any good history is also universal. Thucydides himself said that he was writing his history so that men of the future would not have to repeat the mistakes he had seen made and from which he had suffered personally 
and through the agony of his country. He described the kinds of human mistakes that would have meaning to men other than himself, to men other than Greeks. Yet some of the very same errors that the Athenians and the Spartans made 2,500 years ago, or at least very similar ones, are being made now, as they have been made over and over again since Thucydides' time. If your view of history is limited, if you go to it to discover only what really happened, you will not learn the main thing that Thucydides, or indeed any good historian, has to teach. If you read Thucydides well, you may even decide to give up trying to discover what really happened in the past. History is the story of what led up to now. It is the present that interests us, that and the future. The future will be partly determined by the present. Thus, you can learn something about the future, too, from a historian, even from one who, like Thucydides, lived more than two thousand years ago. Let us sum up these two suggestions for reading history. The first is, if you can, read more than one history of an event or period that interests you. The second is, Read a history not only to learn what really happened at a particular time and place in the past, but also to learn the way men act in all times and places, especially now. Questions to Ask of a Historical Book Despite the fact that most histories are closer to fiction than to science, they can be read as expository works, and therefore they should be. Hence, we must ask the same questions of a historical book that we ask of any expository book. Because of the special nature of history, we must ask those questions a little differently and must expect to receive slightly different kinds of answers. As far as the first question is concerned, every history has a particular and limited subject. It is surprising, then, how often readers do not trouble to find out what this is. In particular, they do not always note carefully what limitations the author sets for himself. A history of the Civil War is not a history of the world in the 19th century. It probably will not be a history of the American West in the 1860s. It could, though perhaps it should not, ignore the state of American education in that decade, or the movement of the American frontier, or the progress of American freedom. Hence, if we are to read a history well, it is necessary to know precisely what it is about and what it is not about. Certainly, if we are to criticize it, we must know the latter. An author cannot be blamed for not doing what he did not try to do. With regard to the second question, the historian tells a story, and that story, of course, occurred in time. Its general outlines are thus determined, and we do not have to search for them. But there's more than one way to tell a story, and we must know how the historian has chosen to tell his. Does he divide his work into chapters that correspond to years, or decades, or generations? Or does he divide it according to other rubrics of his own choosing? Does he discuss in one chapter the economic history of his period and cover its wars and religious movements and literary productions in others? Which of these is most important to him? If we discover that, if we can say which aspect of the story he is telling seems to him most fundamental, we can understand him better. We may not agree with his judgment about what is basic, but we can still learn from him. Criticism of history takes two forms. We can judge, but only, as always, after we understand what is being said, that a historian's work lacks verisimilitude, 
people just do not act that way, we may feel. Even if the historian documents his statements by giving us access to his sources, and even if to our knowledge they are relevant, we can still feel that he has misunderstood them, that he has judged them in the wrong way, perhaps through some deficiency in his grasp of human nature or human affairs. We tend to feel this, for example, about many older historians, who do not include much discussion of economic matters in their work. People, we may be inclined to think now, act out of self-interest. Too much nobility ascribed to the hero of a history may make us suspicious. On the other hand, we may think, especially if we have some special knowledge of the subject, that the historian has misused his sources. We may be indignant to discover that he has not read a certain book that we have read, and he may be misinformed about the facts of the matter. In that case, he cannot have written a good history of it. We expect a historian to be informed. The first criticism is, however, more important. A good historian must combine the talents of the storyteller and the scientist. He must know what is likely to have happened, as well as what some witnesses or writers said actually did happen. With regard to the last question, what of it, it is possible that no kind of literature has a greater effect on the actions of men than history. Satires and pictures of philosophical utopias have little effect. We would all like the world to be better, but we are seldom inspired by the recommendations of authors who do no more than describe, often bitterly, the difference between the real and the ideal. History, which tells us of the actions of men of the past, often does lead us to make changes, to try to better our lot. In general, statesmen have been more learned in history than in other disciplines. History suggests the possible, for it describes things that have already been done. If they have been done, perhaps they can be done again, or perhaps they can be avoided. The main answer to the question, what of it, therefore, lies in the direction of practical political action. For this reason, it is of great importance that history be read well. Unfortunately, leaders have often acted with some knowledge of history, but not enough. With the world as small and dangerous as it has become, it would be a good idea for all of us to start reading history better. How to Read Biography and Autobiography A biography is a story about a real person. This mixed patrimony causes it to have a mixed character. Some biographers would object to this description, but ordinarily, at least, a biography is a narrative account of the life, the history, of a man or woman, or of a group of people. Thus a biography poses many of the same problems as a history. The reader must ask the same sort of questions. What is the author's purpose? What are his criteria of truth? As well, of course, as asking the questions we must ask of any book. There are several kinds of biographies. The definitive biography is intended to be the final, exhaustive, scholarly work on the life of someone important enough to deserve a definitive biography. Definitive biographies cannot be written about living persons. They are seldom written until several non-definitive biographies have first appeared, all of them often somewhat inadequate. All sources are gone through, all letters read, and a great deal of contemporary history examined by the author. Since the ability to gather the materials is somewhat different from the talent for shaping them into a good book, definitive biographies are not always easy reading. This is too bad. A scholarly book does not have to be dull, 
One of the greatest of all biographies is Boswell's Life of Johnson, and it is continuously fascinating. It is certainly definitive, though other biographies of Dr. Johnson have since appeared, but it is also uniquely interesting. A definitive biography is a slice of history, the history of a man and of his times, as seen through his eyes. It should be read as history. An authorized biography is not the same thing at all. Such works are usually commissioned by the heirs or friends of some important person, and they are carefully written, so that the errors the person made and the triumphs he achieved are seen in the best light possible. They can sometimes be very good indeed, because the author has the advantage, not as a rule accorded to other writers, of being allowed access to all pertinent material by those who control it. But, of course, an authorized biography cannot be trusted in the same way that a definitive biography can be. Instead of reading it simply as history, the reader should understand that it may be biased, that this is the way the reader is expected to think of the book's subject. This is the way his friends and associates want him to be known to the world. The authorized biography is a kind of history, but it is history with a difference. We may be curious to know what interested persons want the public to know about someone's private life, but we should not expect to know what the private life really was. The reading of an authorized biography will thus often tell us much about the time in which it was written, about its customs and manners, about those actions and attitudes that were acceptable, and, by implication and with a little extrapolation, about those that were not. But we should not hope to discover the real life of a human being any more than we would hope to know the real story of a war if we read the communiques of only one side. To get at the truth, we must read all the communiques, ask people who were there, and use our own minds to make sense out of the muddle. A definitive biography has already done this work, in the case of an authorized biography, and most biographies of living persons are of this sort. There is still much to do. There remain those biographies that are neither definitive nor authorized. Perhaps we may call them ordinary biographies. In such works, we expect the author to be accurate, to know his facts. We want above all to be given the feeling that we are viewing the life of a real person in another time and place. Human beings are curious, and especially curious about other human beings. Such books, although not trustworthy in the way definitive biographies are, are often very good reading. The world would be the poorer without Isaac Walton's lives of his friends, the poets John Donne and George Herbert, for example. Walton is, of course, better known for his The Complete Angler. Or John Tyndall's account of his friend Michael Faraday in Faraday the Discoverer. Some biographies are didactic. They have a moral purpose. Not many of this sort are written anymore, but they used to be common. They are still written for children, of course. Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans is such a work. Plutarch told the stories of great men of the Greek and Roman past in order to help his contemporaries to be great also, and to help them avoid the errors into which the great so often fall, or so he felt. The Lives is a marvelous book. But although many of the accounts are the only ones we have of their subjects, we do not read it so much for its biographical information as for its view of life in general. Its subjects are interesting people, good and bad, but never indifferent. Plutarch realized this himself.
His original intention in writing had been to instruct others, he said. But in the course of the work, he discovered that more and more it was he himself who was deriving profit and stimulation from lodging these men one after the other in his house. Incidentally, Plutarch's is another historical work that has exercised influence on subsequent history. For example, just as Plutarch shows Alexander the Great modeling his own life on that of Achilles, whose life he learned about from Homer, so many later conquerors have tried to model their lives on that of Plutarch's Alexander. Autobiographies present some different and interesting problems. First of all, one has ever written a true autobiography. If it is difficult to know the life of anyone else, it is even more difficult to know one's own. And, of course, all the autobiographies have to be written about lives that are not yet complete. The temptation to tell either less or more than the truth, the latter may be more common, when there is no one to contradict you, is almost irresistible. Everybody has some secrets he cannot bear to divulge. Everybody also has some illusions about himself, which it is almost impossible for him to regard as illusions. However, although it is not possible to write a wholly true autobiography, neither is it possible to write one that contains no truth at all. Just as no man can be a perfect liar, so every autobiography tells us something about its author, if only that there are things that he wants to conceal. It is customary to say that the Confessions of Rousseau, or some other book written about the same time, about the middle of the eighteenth century, is the first real autobiography. This is to overlook Augustine's Confessions, for example, and Montaigne's Essays but the error is more serious than that. In fact, much of what anyone writes on any subject is autobiographical. There is a great deal of Plato in The Republic, of Milton in Paradise Lost, of Goethe in Faust, though we may not be able to put our finger on it exactly. If we are interested in humanity, we will tend, within reasonable limits, to read any book partly with an eye to discovering the character of its author. This should never be the primary consideration, and it leads, when it is overdone, to the so-called pathetic fallacy. But we should remember that words do not write themselves. The ones we read have been found and written down by a living man. Plato and Aristotle said some similar and some dissimilar things. But even if they had agreed completely, they could not have written the same books, for they were different men. We may even discover something of St. Thomas Aquinas in such an apparently unrevealing work as the Summa Theologica. Thus it matters very little that formal autobiography is a relatively new literary genre. No one has ever been able to keep himself entirely out of his book. I have no more made my book, said Montaigne, than my book has made me. A book co-substantial with its author, concerned with my own self, an integral part of my life. And he added, Everyone recognizes me in my book, and my book in me. This is true, and not only of Montaigne. This is no book, says Whitman, of his leaves of grass. Who touches this, touches a man. Are there any additional hints for reading biographies and autobiographies? Here's one that's important. Despite the fact that such books, and especially the autobiographies, reveal much about their authors, 
We should not spend so much time trying to discover a writer's secrets that we do not find out what he says plainly. Apart from this, given the fact that such books are often more poetical than discursive or philosophical, and that they are special kinds of history, there is perhaps little more to add. You should remember, of course, that if you wish to know the truth about a person's life, you should read as many biographies of him as you can find, including his own account of his life, if he wrote one. Read biography as history, and as the cause of history. Take all autobiographies with a grain of salt, and never forget that you must not argue with a book until you fully understand what it is saying. As to the question, what of it, we would only say this, biography, like history, can be a cause of practical moral action. A biography can be inspiring. It is the story of a life, usually a more or less successful one. And we, too, have lives to lead. How to Read About Current Events We have said that our exposition of the art of analytical reading applies to everything you have to read, not just to books. Now we want to qualify that statement a little. Analytical reading is not always necessary. There are many things that we read that do not require the kind of effort and skill that is called for at this third level of reading ability. Nevertheless, although the rules of reading do not all always have to be applied, the four questions must always be asked of anything you read. That means, of course, that they must be asked when you are faced with the kind of things to which most of us devote much of our reading time, newspapers, magazines, books about current events, and the like. After all, history did not stop a thousand years ago, or a hundred. The world goes on, and men and women continue to write about what is happening and how things are changing. Perhaps no modern history is as great as Thucydides' work. Posterity will have to be the judge of that. But we do have an obligation, as human beings and as citizens, to try to understand the world around us. The problem comes down to knowing what is actually happening now. We have chosen the word actually in the last sentence intentionally. The French word for newsreel is actualité. The whole concept of current events literature is somehow the same as that of the news. How do we get the news? And how do we know that what we get is true? You can see at once that we are faced with the same problem that is posed by history itself. We cannot be sure that we are getting at the facts. We cannot be sure that we know what is happening now any more than we can be sure about what happened in the past. And yet, we must try to know, as far as that is possible. If we could be everywhere at once, overhear all conversations on earth, look into the heart of every living person, we might be able to make a stab at the truth of current events. Being human, and hence limited, we must fall back on the services of reporters. Reporters are persons who are supposed to know what is happening in a small area. They report it in newspaper stories, in magazines, or in books. What we can know depends on them. Ideally, a reporter of whatever kind is a clear glass in which reality is reflected, or through which it shines. But the human mind is not a clear glass. It is not a good reflector, and when reality shines through it, the mind is not a very good filter. It separates out what it considers to be unreality, untruth. That is proper, of course. A reporter should not report what he thinks is false, but he may be mistaken. Thus the most important thing to know when reading any report of current happenings is, who is writing the report? 
What is involved here is not so much an acquaintance with the reporter himself, as with the kind of mind he has. The various sorts of filter reporters fall into groups. To understand what kind of filter our reporter's mind is, we must ask a series of questions about it. This amounts to asking a series of questions about any material dealing with current events. The questions are these. 1. What does the author want to prove? 2. Whom does he want to convince? 3. What special knowledge does he assume? 4. What special language does he use? 5. Does he really know what he's talking about? For the most part, it is safe to assume that all current events books want to prove something. Often it is easy enough to discover what this is. The blurb often states the main contention or thesis of such books. If it does not appear there, it may be stated by the author in a preface. Having asked what the book is trying to prove, you should next ask whom the author is trying to convince. Is the book intended for those in the know, and are you in that category? Is it for that small group of persons who can do something, and quickly, about the situation the author describes? Or is it for everyone? If you do not belong to the audience for which the book is intended, you may not want to read it. You must next discover what special knowledge the author assumes that you have. The word knowledge is intended here to cover a lot of ground. Opinion or prejudice might have been a better choice. Many authors write only for readers who agree with them. If you disagree sharply with a reporter's assumptions, you may only be irritated if you try to read his book. The assumptions that an author makes and that he assumes you share are sometimes very difficult to discover. In the 17th century background, Basil Willey has this to say, It is almost insuperably difficult to become critically conscious of one's own habitual assumptions. Doctrines felt as facts can only be seen to be doctrines and not facts after great efforts of thought, and usually only with the aid of a first-rate metaphysician. He goes on to suggest that it is easier to discover the doctrines felt as facts of an age different from our own, and that is what he attempts to do in his book. In reading books about our own time, however, we do not have the advantage of distance. Thus we must try to see through the filter not only of the author-reporter's mind, but also of our own. Next, you must ask if there is a special language that the author uses. This is particularly important in reading magazines and newspapers but it also applies to all books about current history. Certain words provoke special responses from us, responses that they might not provoke from other readers a century hence. An example of such a word is communism or communist. We should try to control these responses, or at least know when they occur. Finally, you must consider the last of the five questions, which is probably the hardest to answer. Does the reporter whose work you are reading himself know the facts? Is he privy to the perhaps secret thoughts and decisions of the persons about whom he is writing? Does he know all that he should know in order to give a fair and balanced account of the situation? What we are suggesting, in other words, is that the possible bias of the author-reporter is not the only thing that has to be considered. We have heard a good deal lately about the management of the news. It is important to realize that this applies not only to us as members of the public, but also to reporters who are supposed to be in the know. They may not be, with the best goodwill in the world, 
with every intention of providing us with the truth of the matter, a reporter may still be uninformed with regard to secret actions, treaties, and so forth. He himself may be aware of this, or he may not. In the latter case, of course, the situation is especially perilous for his reader. You will note that these five questions are really only variations on the questions we have said you must ask of any expository book. Knowing an author's special language, for example, is nothing more than coming to terms with him. But because current books and other material about the contemporary world pose special problems for us as readers, we have stated the questions in a different way. Perhaps it is most useful to sum up the difference in a warning rather than a set of rules for reading books of this kind. The warning is this, caveat lector, let the reader beware. Readers do not have to be wary when reading Aristotle or Dante or Shakespeare, but the author of any contemporary book may have, though he does not necessarily have, an interest in your understanding it in a certain way, or if he does not, the sources of his information may have such an interest. You should know that interest, and take it into account in whatever you read. A Note on Digests There is another consequence of our basic distinction, the distinction between reading for information and reading for understanding, that underlies everything we have said about reading, and this is that sometimes we have to read for information about understanding, to find out how others have interpreted the facts. Let us try to explain what this means. For the most part, we read newspapers and magazines, and even advertising matter, for the information they contain. The amount of such material is vast, so vast that no one today has time to read more than a small fraction of it. Necessity has been the mother of a number of good inventions in the field of such reading. The news magazines, for instance, such as Time and Newsweek, perform an invaluable function for most of us by reading the news and reducing it to its essential elements of information. The men who write these magazines are primarily readers. They have developed the art of reading for information to a point far beyond the average reader's competence. The same is true of a publication like Reader's Digest, which professes to bring us in condensed form much that is worth our attention in current general magazines to the compact scope of a single small volume. Of course, the very best articles, like the best books, cannot be condensed without loss. If the essays of Montaigne, for example, were appearing in a current periodical, we would scarcely be satisfied to read a digest of them. A summary, in this case, would function well only if it impelled us to read the original. For the average article, however, a condensation is usually adequate, and often even better than the original, because the average article is mainly informational. The skill that produces Reader's Digest and the scores of similar periodicals is, first of all, a skill in reading, and only then one of writing simply and clearly. It does for us what few of us have the technique, even if we have the time, to do for ourselves. It cuts the core of solid information out of pages and pages of less substantial stuff. But, after all, we still have to read the periodicals that accomplish these digests of current news and information. If we wish to be informed, we cannot avoid the task of reading, no matter how good the digests are. And the task of reading them is, in the last analysis, the same task as that which is performed by the editors of these magazines on the original material that they make available in more compact form. They have saved us labor, 
so far as the extent of our reading is concerned. But they have not saved us and cannot entirely save us the trouble of reading. In a sense, the function they perform profits us only if we can read their digests of information as well as they have done the prior reading in order to give us the digests. And that involves reading for understanding as well as information. Obviously, the more condensed a digest is, the more selection has occurred. We may not have to worry about this very much if 1,000 pages are cut down to 900, say. But if 1,000 pages are cut to 10, or even 1, then the question of what has been left out becomes critical. Hence, the greater the condensation, the more important it is that we know something of the character of the condenser. The same caveat we mentioned before applies here with even greater force. Ultimately, perhaps, this comes down to reading between the lines of an expert condensation. You cannot refer to the original to find out what was left out. You must somehow infer this from the condensation itself. Reading digests, therefore, is sometimes the most demanding and difficult reading that you can do. Chapter 17 How to Read Science and Mathematics The title of this chapter may be misleading. We do not propose to give you advice about how to read every kind of science and mathematics. We will confine ourselves to discussing only two kinds, the great scientific and mathematical classics of our tradition on the one hand, and modern scientific popularizations on the other hand. What we say will often be applicable to the reading of specialized monographs on abstruse and limited subjects, but we cannot help you to read those. There are two reasons for this. One is simply that we are not qualified to do it. The other is this. Until approximately the end of the nineteenth century, the major scientific books were written for a lay audience. Their authors, men like Galileo and Newton and Darwin, were not averse to being read by specialists in their field. Indeed, they wanted to reach such readers. But there was as yet no institutionalized specialization in those days, days which Albert Einstein called the happy childhood of science. Intelligent and well-read persons were expected to read scientific books as well as history and philosophy. There were no hard and fast distinctions, no boundaries that could not be crossed. There was also none of the disregard for the general or lay reader that is manifest in contemporary scientific writing. Most modern scientists do not care what lay readers think, and so they do not even try to reach them. Today, science tends to be written by experts for experts. A serious communication on a scientific subject assumes so much specialized knowledge on the part of the reader that it usually cannot be read at all by anyone not learned in the field. There are obvious advantages to this approach, not least that it serves to advance science more quickly. Experts talking to each other about their expertise can arrive very quickly at the frontiers of it. They can see the problems at once and begin to try to solve them. But the cost is equally obvious. You the ordinary intelligent reader whom we are addressing in this book, are left quite out of the picture. In fact, this situation, although it is more extreme in science than elsewhere, obtains in many other fields as well. Nowadays, philosophers seldom write for anyone except other philosophers. Economists write for economists. And even historians are beginning to find that the kind of shorthand, monographic communication to other experts that has long been dominant in science is a more convenient way of getting ideas across than the more traditional narrative work written for everyone.
what does the general reader do in these circumstances? He cannot become expert in all fields. He must fall back, therefore, on scientific popularizations. Some of these are good, and some are bad. But it is not only important to know the difference. It is also important to be able to read the good ones with understanding. Understanding the Scientific Enterprise One of the fastest-growing academic disciplines is the history of science. We have seen marked changes in this area within the past few years. It was not so long ago that serious scientists looked down upon historians of science. The latter were thought of as men who studied the history of a subject because they were not capable of expanding its frontiers. The attitude of scientists to historians of science could be summed up in that famous remark of George Bernard Shaw's, Those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. Expressions of this attitude are seldom heard nowadays. Departments of the history of science have become respectable, and excellent scientists study and write about the history of their subject. An example is what has been called the Newton industry. At the present time, intensive and extensive research is being undertaken in many countries on the work and strange personality of Sir Isaac Newton. Half a dozen books have been recently published or announced. The reason is that scientists are more concerned than ever before about the nature of the scientific enterprise itself. Thus we have no hesitation in recommending that you try to read at least some of the great scientific classics of our tradition. In fact, there is really no excuse for not trying to read them. None of them is impossibly difficult, not even a book like Newton's Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, if you're willing to make the effort. The most helpful advice we can give you is this. You are required by one of the rules for reading expository works to state as clearly as you can the problem that the author has tried to solve. This rule of analytical reading is relevant to all expository works, but it is particularly relevant to works in the fields of science and mathematics. There's another way of saying this. As a layman, you do not read the classical scientific books to become knowledgeable in their subject matters in a contemporary sense. Instead, you read them to understand the history and philosophy of science. That, indeed, is the layman's responsibility with regard to science. The major way in which you can discharge it is to become aware of the problems that the great scientists were trying to solve, aware of the problems and aware also of the background of the problems. To follow the strands of scientific development, to trace the ways in which facts, assumptions, principles, and proofs are interrelated, is to engage in the activity of the human reason, where it has probably operated with the most success. That is enough by itself, perhaps, to justify the historical study of science. In addition, such study will serve to dispel, in some measure, the apparent unintelligibility of science. Most important of all, it is an activity of the mind that is essential to education, the central aim of which has always been recognized from Socrates' day down to our own as the freeing of the mind through the discipline of wonder. Suggestions for Reading Classical Scientific Books By a scientific book we mean the report of findings or conclusions in some field of research, whether carried on experimentally in a laboratory or by observations of nature in the raw. The scientific problem is always to describe the phenomena as accurately as possible. 
and to trace the interconnections between different kinds of phenomena. In the great works of science, there is no oratory or propaganda, though there may be bias in the sense of initial presuppositions. You detect this and take account of it by distinguishing what the author assumes from what he establishes through argument. The more objective a scientific author is, the more he will explicitly ask you to take this or that for granted. Scientific objectivity is not the absence of initial bias. It is attained by frank confession of it. The leading terms in a scientific work are usually expressed by uncommon or technical words. They're relatively easy to spot, and through them you can easily grasp the propositions. The main propositions are always general ones. Science thus is not chronotopic. Just the opposite. A scientist, unlike a historian, tries to get away from locality and time and place. He tries to say how things are generally, how things generally behave. There are likely to be two main difficulties in reading a scientific book. One is with respect to the arguments. Science is primarily inductive, that is, its primary arguments are those that establish a general proposition by reference to observable evidence, a single case created by an experiment, or a vast array of cases collected by patient investigation. There are other arguments of the sort that are called deductive. These are arguments in which a proposition is proved by other propositions already somehow established. So far as proof is concerned, Science does not differ much from philosophy, but the inductive argument is characteristic of science. This first difficulty arises because in order to understand the inductive arguments in a scientific book, you must be able to follow the evidence that the scientist reports as their basis. Unfortunately, this is not always possible with nothing but the book in hand. If the book itself fails to enlighten him, the reader has only one recourse— which is to get the necessary special experience for himself at first hand. He may have to witness a laboratory demonstration. He may have to look at and handle pieces of apparatus similar to those referred to in the book. He may have to go to a museum and observe specimens or models. Anyone who desires to acquire an understanding of the history of science must not only read the classical texts, but must also become acquainted, through direct experience, with the crucial experiments in that history. There are classical experiments as well as classical books. The scientific classics become more intelligible to those who have seen with their own eyes and done with their own hands what a great scientist describes as the procedure by which he reached his insights. This does not mean that you cannot make a start without going through all the steps described. Take a book like Lavoisier's Elements of Chemistry, for instance. Published in 1789, the work is no longer considered to be useful as a textbook in chemistry, and indeed a student would be unwise to study it for the purpose of passing even a high school examination in the subject. Nevertheless, its method was revolutionary at the time, and its conception of a chemical element is still, on the whole, the one that we have in modern times. Now the point is that you do not have to read the book through and in detail to receive these impressions of it. The preface, for example, with its emphasis on the importance of method in science, is enlightening. Every branch of physical science, wrote Lavoisier, must consist of three things, the series of facts which are the objects of the science, the ideas which represent these facts, and the words by which these facts are expressed. 
and as ideas are preserved and communicated by means of words, it necessarily follows that we cannot improve the language of any science without at the same time improving the science itself. Neither can we, on the other hand, improve a science without improving the language or nomenclature which belongs to it. This was exactly what Lavoisier did. He improved chemistry by improving its language, just as Newton, a century before, had improved physics by systematizing and ordering its language, in the process, as you may recall, developing the differential and integral calculus. Mention of the calculus leads us to consider the second main difficulty in reading scientific books, and that is the problem of mathematics. Facing the Problem of Mathematics Many people are frightened of mathematics and think they cannot read it at all. No one is quite sure why this is so. Some psychologists think there is such a thing as symbol blindness, the inability to set aside one's dependence on the concrete and to follow the controlled shifting of symbols. There may be something to this, except, of course, that words shift, too, and their shifts, being more or less uncontrolled, are perhaps even more difficult to follow. Others believe that the trouble lies in the teaching of mathematics. If so, we can be gratified that much recent research has been devoted to the question of how to teach it better. The problem is partly this. We are not told, or not told early enough so that it sinks in, that mathematics is a language, and that we can learn it like any other, including our own. We have to learn our own language twice. First, when we learn to speak it. Second, when we learn to read it. Fortunately, mathematics has to be learned only once, since it is almost wholly a written language. As we have already observed, learning a new written language always involves us in problems of elementary reading. When we underwent our initial reading instruction in elementary school, our problem was to learn to recognize certain arbitrary symbols when they appeared on a page, and to memorize certain relations among these symbols. Even the best readers continue to read, at least occasionally, at the elementary level. For example, whenever we come upon a word that we do not know and have to look it up in the dictionary. If we are puzzled by the syntax of a sentence, we are also working at the elementary level. Only when we have solved these problems can we go on to read at higher levels. Since mathematics is a language, it has its own vocabulary, grammar, and syntax, and these have to be learned by the beginning reader. Certain symbols and relationships between symbols have to be memorized. The problem is different, because the language is different. But it is no more difficult, theoretically, than learning to read English or French or German. At the elementary level, in fact, it may even be easier. Any language is a medium of communication among men on subjects that the communicants can mutually comprehend. The subjects of ordinary discourse are mainly emotional facts and relations. Such subjects are not entirely comprehensible by any two different persons. But two different persons can comprehend a third thing that is outside of and emotionally separated from both of them, such as an electrical circuit, an isosceles triangle, or a syllogism. It is mainly when we invest these things with emotional connotations that we have trouble understanding them. Mathematics allows us to avoid this. There are no emotional connotations of mathematical terms, propositions, 
and equations when these are properly used. We are also not told, at least not early enough, how beautiful and how intellectually satisfying mathematics can be. It is probably not too late for anyone to see this if he will go to a little trouble. You might start with Euclid, whose Elements of Geometry is one of the most lucid and beautiful works of any kind that has ever been written. Let us consider, for example, the first five propositions in Book One of The Elements. If a copy of the book is available, you should look at it. Propositions in elementary geometry are of two kinds. One, the statement of problems in the construction of figures, and two, theorems about the relations between figures or their parts. Construction problems require that something be done. Theorems require that something be proved. At the end of Euclidean construction problem, you will find the letters QEF, which stand for quod erat faciendum, being what it was required to do. At the end of Euclidean theorem, you will find the letters QED, which stand for quod erat demonstrandum, being what it was required to prove. The first three propositions in Book One of the Elements are all problems of construction. Why is this? One answer is that the constructions are needed in the proofs of the theorems. This is not apparent in the first four propositions, but we can see it in the fifth proposition, which is a theorem. It states that, in an isosceles triangle, a triangle with two equal sides, the base angles are equal. This involves the use of proposition three, for a shorter line is cut off from a longer line. Since Proposition 3, in turn, depends on the use of the construction in Proposition 2, while Proposition 2 involves Proposition 1, we see that these three constructions are needed for the sake of Proposition 5. Constructions can also be interpreted as serving another purpose. They bear an obvious similarity to postulates. Both constructions and postulates assert that geometrical operations can be performed. In the case of the postulates, the possibility is assumed. In the case of the propositions, it is proved. The proof, of course, involves the use of the postulates. Thus we might wonder, for example, whether there is really any such thing as an equilateral triangle, which is defined in definition 20. Without troubling ourselves here about the thorny question of the existence of mathematical objects, we can at least see that Proposition 1 shows that, from the assumption that there are such things as straight lines and circles, it follows that there are such things as equilateral triangles. Let us return to Proposition 5, the theorem about the equality of the base angles of an isosceles triangle. When the conclusion has been reached, in a series of steps involving reference to previous propositions and to the postulates. The proposition has been proved. It has then been shown that if something is true, namely the hypothesis that we have an isosceles triangle, and if some additional things are valid, the definitions, postulates, and prior propositions, then something else is also true, namely the conclusion. The proposition asserts this if-then relationship. It does not assert the truth of the hypothesis, 
nor does it assert the truth of the conclusion, except when the hypothesis is true. Nor is this connection between hypothesis and conclusion seen to be true until the proposition is proved. It is precisely the truth of this connection that is proved, and nothing else. Is it an exaggeration to say that this is beautiful? We do not think so. What we have here is a really logical exposition of a really limited problem. There is something very attractive about both the clarity of the exposition and the limited nature of the problem. Ordinary discourse, even very good philosophical discourse, finds it difficult to limit its problems in this way, and the use of logic in the case of philosophical problems is hardly ever as clear as this. Consider the difference between the argument of Proposition 5, as outlined here, and even the simplest of syllogisms, such as the following. All animals are mortal. All men are animals. Therefore, all men are mortal. There is something satisfying about that, too. We can treat it as though it were a piece of mathematical reasoning. Assuming that there are such things as animals and men, and that animals are mortal, then the conclusion follows with the same certainty as the one about the angles of the triangle. But the trouble is that there really are animals and men. We are assuming something about real things, something that may or may not be true. We have to examine our assumptions in a way that we do not have to do in mathematics. Euclid's proposition does not suffer from this. It does not really matter to him whether there are such things as isosceles triangles. If there are, he is saying, and if they are defined in such and such a way, then it follows absolutely that their base angles are equal. There can be no doubt about this whatever, now and forever. Handling the Mathematics in Scientific Books This digression on Euclid has led us a little out of our way. We were observing that the presence of mathematics in scientific books is one of the main obstacles to reading them. There are a couple of things to say about that. First, you can probably read at least elementary mathematics better than you think. We have already suggested that you should begin with Euclid, and we are confident that if you spent several evenings with the elements, you would overcome much of your fear of the subject. Having done some work on Euclid, you might proceed to glance at the works of other classical Greek mathematicians, Archimedes, Apollonius, Nicomachus. They're not really very difficult, and besides, you can skip. That leads to the second point we want to make. If your intention is to read a mathematical book in and for itself, you must read it, of course, from beginning to end, and with a pencil in your hand, for writing in the margins and even on a scratch pad is more necessary here than in the case of any other kind of books. But your intention may not be that, but instead to read a scientific work that has mathematics in it. In this case, skipping is often the better part of valor. Take Newton's Principia for an example. The book contains many propositions, both construction problems and theorems. But it is not necessary to read all of them in detail, especially the first time through. Read the statement of the proposition and glance down the proof to get an idea of how it is done. Read the statements of the so-called lemmas and corollaries, and read the so-called scoliums, which are essentially discussions of the relations between propositions and of their relations to the work as a whole. 
You will begin to see that hole if you do this, and so to discover how the system that Newton is constructing is built, what comes first and what comes second, and how the parts fit together. Go through the whole work in this way, avoiding the diagrams if they trouble you, as they do many readers, merely glancing at much of the interstitial material, but being sure to find and read the passages where Newton is making his main points. One of these comes at the very end of the work, at the close of Book Three, which is titled The System of the World. This general scolium, as Newton called it, not only sums up what has gone before, but also states the great problem of almost all subsequent physics. Newton's Optics is another scientific classic that you might want to try to read. There is actually very little mathematics in it, although at first glance that does not appear to be so, because the pages are sprinkled with diagrams. But these diagrams are merely illustrations describing Newton's experiments with holes for the sun to shine through into a dark room, with prisms to intercept the sunbeam, and with pieces of white paper placed so that the various colors of the beam can shine on them. You can quite easily repeat some of these experiments yourself, and this is fun to do, for the colors are beautiful, and the descriptions are eminently clear. You will want to read, in addition to the descriptions of the experiments, the statements of the various theorems or propositions, and the discussions that occur at the end of each of the three books, where Newton sums up his discoveries and suggests their consequences. The end of Book Three is famous for it contains some statements by Newton about the scientific enterprise itself that are well worth reading. Mathematics is very often employed by scientific writers, mainly because it has the qualities of preciseness, clarity, and limitedness that we have described. Usually you can understand something of the matter without going very deeply into the mathematics, as in the case of Newton. Oddly enough, however, even if mathematics is absolutely terrifying to you, its absence from certain works may cause you even more trouble. A case in point is Galileo's Two New Sciences, his famous treatise on the strength of materials and on motion. This work is particularly difficult for modern readers because it is not primarily mathematical. Instead, it is presented in the form of a dialogue. The dialogue form, though appropriate to the stage and useful in philosophy when employed by such a master as Plato, is not really appropriate to science. It is therefore hard to discover what Galileo is saying, although when you do you will discover that he is stating some revolutionary things. Not all of the scientific classics, of course, employ mathematics, or even need to employ it. The works of Hippocrates, the founder of Greek medicine, are not mathematical. You might well read them to discover Hippocrates' view of medicine, namely, that it is the art of keeping people well, rather than that of curing them when they are sick. That is unfortunately an uncommon idea nowadays. Nor is William Harvey's discourse on the circulation of the blood mathematical, or William Gilbert's book on magnets. They can be read without too much difficulty if you always keep in mind that your primary obligation is not to become competent in the subject matter, but instead to understand the problem. A Note on Popular Science In a sense, there is little more to say about reading scientific popularizations. By definition, these are works, either books or articles, written for a wide audience, 
not just for specialists. Thus, if you have managed to read some of the classics of the scientific tradition, you should not have much trouble with them. This is because, although they are about science, they generally skirt or avoid the two main problems that confront the reader of an original contribution in science. First, they contain relatively few descriptions of experiments. Instead, they merely report the results of experiments. Second, they contain relatively little mathematics, unless they're popular books about mathematics itself. Popular scientific articles are usually easier to read than popular scientific books, although not always. Sometimes such articles are very good. For example, articles found in Scientific American, a monthly magazine, or Science, a somewhat more technical weekly publication. Of course, these publications, no matter how good they are, or how carefully and responsibly edited, pose the problem that was discussed at the end of the last chapter. In reading them, we are at the mercy of reporters who filter the information for us. If they are good reporters, we are fortunate. If they are not, we have almost no recourse. Scientific popularizations are never easy reading in the sense that a story is or seems to be. Even a three-page article on DNA, containing no reports of experiments, and no diagrams or mathematical formulas, demands considerable effort on the part of the reader. You cannot read it for understanding without keeping your mind awake. Thus, the requirement that you read actively is more important here than almost anywhere else. Identify the subject matter. Discover the relation between the whole and its parts. Come to terms and plot the propositions and arguments. Work at achieving understanding before you begin to criticize or to assess significance. These rules by now are all familiar, but they apply here with particular force. Short articles are usually primarily informational, and as such they require less active thinking on your part. You must make an effort to understand, to follow the account provided by the author, but you often do not have to go beyond that. In the case of such excellent popular books as Whitehead's Introduction to Mathematics, Lincoln Barnett's The Universe and Dr. Einstein, and Barry Commoner's The Closing Circle, something more is required. This is particularly true of a book like Commoner's on a subject, The Environmental Crisis, of special interest and importance to all of us today. The writing is compact and requires constant attention. But the book as a whole has implications that the careful reader will not miss, although it is not a practical work in the sense described above in chapter 13. Its theoretical conclusions have important consequences. The mere mention of the book's subject matter, the environmental crisis, suggests this. The environment in question is our own. If it is undergoing a crisis of some sort, then it inevitably follows, even if the author had not said so, though in fact he has, that we are also involved in the crisis. The thing to do in a crisis is usually to act in a certain way, or to stop acting in a certain way. Thus, Commoner's book, though essentially theoretical, has a significance that goes beyond the theoretical and into the realm of the practical. This is not to suggest that Commoner's work is important and the books by Whitehead and Barnett unimportant. When The Universe and Dr. Einstein was written, 
as a theoretical account, written for a popular audience, of the history of researches into the atom. People were widely aware of the perils inherent in atomic physics, as represented mainly, but not exclusively, by the recently discovered atomic bomb. Thus, that theoretical book also had practical consequences. But even if people are today not so worried about the imminence of an atomic or nuclear war, there is still what may be called a practical necessity to read this theoretical book, or one like it. The reason is that atomic and nuclear physics is one of the great achievements of our age. It promises great things for man at the same time that it poses great perils. An informed and concerned reader should know everything he can about the subject. A slightly different urgency is exerted by Whitehead's introduction to mathematics. Mathematics is one of the major modern mysteries. Perhaps it is the leading one, occupying a place in our society similar to the religious mysteries of another age. If we want to know something about what our age is all about, we should have some understanding of what mathematics is, and of how the mathematician operates and thinks. Whitehead's book, although it does not go very deeply into the more abstruse branches of the subject, is remarkably eloquent about the principles of mathematical reasoning. If it does nothing else, it shows the attentive reader that the mathematician is an ordinary man, not a magician. And that discovery, too, is important for any reader who desires to expand his horizons beyond the immediate here and now of thought and experience. Chapter 18 How to Read Philosophy Children ask magnificent questions. Why are people? What makes the cat tick? What's the world's first name? Did God have a reason for creating the earth? Out of the mouths of babes comes, if not wisdom, at least the search for it. Philosophy, according to Aristotle, begins in wonder. It certainly begins in childhood, even if for most of us it stops there, too. The child is a natural questioner. It is not the number of questions he asks, but their character that distinguishes him from the adult. Adults do not lose the curiosity that seems to be a native human trait, but their curiosity deteriorates in quality. They want to know whether something is so, not why. But children's questions are not limited to the sort that can be answered by an encyclopedia. What happens between the nursery and college to turn the flow of questions off, or rather, to turn it into the duller channels of adult curiosity? about matters of fact. A mind not agitated by good questions cannot appreciate the significance of even the best answers. It is easy enough to learn the answers, but to develop actively inquisitive minds, alive with real questions, profound questions, that is another story. Why should we have to try to develop such minds when children are born with them? Somewhere along the line, adults must fail somehow to sustain the infant's curiosity at its original depth. School itself, perhaps, dulls the mind, by the dead weight of rote learning, much of which may be necessary. The failure is probably even more the parent's fault. We so often tell a child there is no answer, even when one is available, or demand that he ask no more questions. We thinly conceal our irritation 
when baffled by the apparently unanswerable query. All this discourages the child. He may get the impression that it is impolite to be too inquisitive. Human inquisitiveness is never killed, but it is soon debased to the sort of questions asked by most college students, who, like the adults they are soon to become, ask only for information. We have no solution for this problem. We are certainly not so brash as to think we can tell you how to answer the profound and wondrous questions that children put. But we do want you to recognize that one of the most remarkable things about the great philosophical books is that they ask the same sort of profound questions that children ask. The ability to retain the child's view of the world, with at the same time a mature understanding of what it means to retain it, is extremely rare. And a person who has these qualities is likely to be able to contribute something really important to our thinking. We are not required to think as children in order to understand existence. Children certainly do not and cannot understand it, if indeed anyone can. But we must be able to see as children see, to wonder as they wonder, to ask as they ask. The complexities of adult life get in the way of the truth. The great philosophers have always been able to clear away the complexities and see simple distinctions simple once they're stated, vastly difficult before. If we are to follow them, we too must be childishly simple in our questions, and maturely wise in our replies. The Questions Philosophers Ask What are these childishly simple questions that philosophers ask? When we write them down, they do not seem simple, because to answer them is so difficult. Nevertheless, they are initially simple in the sense of being basic or fundamental. Take the following questions about being or existence, for example. What is the difference between existing and not existing? What is common to all the things that do exist? And what are the properties of everything that does exist? Are there different ways in which things can exist? Different modes of being or existence? Do some things exist only in the mind or for the mind, whereas others exist outside the mind, and whether or not they are known to us or even knowable by us? Does everything that exists exist physically, or are there some things that exist apart from material embodiment? Do all things change, or is there anything that is immutable? Does anything exist necessarily? Or must we say that everything that does exist might not have existed? Is the realm of possible existence larger than the realm of what actually does exist? These are typically the kind of questions that a philosopher asks when he is concerned to explore the nature of being itself and the realms of being. As questions, they are not difficult to state or understand but they are enormously difficult to answer, so difficult, in fact, that there are philosophers, especially in recent times, who have held that they cannot be answered in any satisfactory manner. Another set of philosophical questions concerns change or becoming rather than being. Of the things in our experience to which we would unhesitatingly attribute existence, we would also say that all of them are subject to change. They come into being and pass away. 
while in being, most of them move from one place to another, and many of them change in quantity or in quality. They become larger or smaller, heavier or lighter. Or, like the ripening apple and the aging beefsteak, they change in color. What is involved in any change? In every process of change, is there something that endures unchanged, as well as some respect or aspect of that enduring thing which undergoes change? When you learn something that you did not know before, you have certainly changed with respect to the knowledge you have acquired but you are also the same individual that you were before. If that were not the case, you could not be said to have changed through learning. Is this true of all change? For example, is it true of such remarkable changes as birth and death, of coming to be and passing away, or only of less fundamental changes, such as local motion, growth, or alteration in quality? How many different kinds of change are there? Do the same fundamental elements or conditions enter into all processes of change? And are the same causes operative in all? What do we mean by a cause of change? Are there different types of causes responsible for change? Are the causes of change, of becoming, the same as the causes of being or existence? Such questions are asked by the philosopher who turns his attention from being to becoming, and also tries to relate becoming to being. Once again, they are not difficult questions to state or understand, though they are extremely difficult to answer clearly and well. In any case, you can see how they begin with a childishly simple attitude toward the world and our experience of it. Unfortunately, we do not have space to go into the whole range of questions more deeply. We can only list some other questions that philosophers ask and try to answer. There are questions not only about being and becoming, but also about necessity and contingency, about the material and the immaterial, about the physical and the non-physical, about freedom and indeterminacy, about the powers of the human mind, about the nature and extent of human knowledge, about the freedom of the will. All these questions are speculative or theoretical, in the sense of those terms that we have employed in distinguishing between the theoretical and practical realms. But philosophy, as you know, is not restricted to theoretical questions only. Take good and evil, for instance. Children are much concerned with the difference between good and bad. Their behinds are likely to suffer if they make mistakes about it. But we do not stop wondering about the difference when we grow up. Is there a universally valid distinction between good and evil? Are there certain things that are always good, others that are always bad, whatever the circumstances? Or was Hamlet right when, echoing Montaigne, he said, There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Good and evil, of course, are not the same as right and wrong. The two pairs of terms seem to refer to different classes of things. In particular, even if we feel that whatever is right is good, we probably do not feel that whatever is wrong is evil. But how do we make this distinction precise? Good is an important philosophical word, but it is an important word in our everyday vocabulary, too. Trying to say what it means is a heady exercise. It will involve you very deeply in philosophy before you know it. There are many things that are good 
or as we would prefer to say, there are many goods. Is it possible to order the goods? Are some more important than others? Do some depend on others? Are there circumstances in which goods conflict, so that you have to choose one good at the expense of foregoing another? Again, we do not have space to go more extensively into these questions. We can only list some other questions in the practical realm. There are questions not only about good and evil, right and wrong, and the order of goods, but also about duties and obligations, about virtues and vices, about happiness, life's purpose or goal, about justice and rights in the sphere of human relations and social interaction, about the state and its relation to the individual, about the good society, the just polity, and the just economy, about war and peace. The two groups of questions that we have discussed determine or identify two main divisions of philosophy. The questions in the first group, the questions about being and becoming, have to do with what is or happens in the world. Such questions belong to the division of philosophy that is called theoretical or speculative. The questions in the second group, the questions concerning good and evil or right and wrong, have to do with what ought to be done or sought, and they belong to the division of philosophy that is sometimes called practical, and is more accurately called normative. Books that tell you how to make something, such as a cookbook, or how to do something, such as a driver's manual, need not try to argue that you ought to become a good cook or learn to drive a car well. They can assume that you want to make or do something and merely tell you how to succeed in your efforts. In contrast, books of normative philosophy concern themselves primarily with the goals all men ought to seek, goals such as leading a good life or instituting a good society, and unlike cookbooks and driving manuals, they go no further than prescribing in the most universal terms the means that ought to be employed in order to achieve these goals. The questions that philosophers ask also serve to distinguish subordinate branches of the two main divisions of philosophy. A work of speculative or theoretical philosophy is metaphysical if it is mainly concerned with questions about being or existence. It is a work in the philosophy of nature if it is concerned with becoming, with the nature and kinds of changes, their conditions and causes. If its primary concern is with knowledge, with questions about what is involved in our knowing anything, with the causes, extent, and limits of human knowledge, and with its certainties and uncertainties, then it is a work in epistemology, which is just another name for theory of knowledge. Turning from theoretical to normative philosophy, the main distinction is between questions about the good life and what is right or wrong in the conduct of the individual, all of which fall within the sphere of ethics, and questions about the good society, and the conduct of the individual in relation to the community, the sphere of politics, or political philosophy. Modern Philosophy and the Great Tradition For the sake of brevity and what follows, let us call questions about what is and happens in the world, or about what men ought to do or seek, first-order questions. We should recognize, then, that there are also second-order questions that can be asked. Questions about our first-order knowledge. Questions about the content of our thinking when we try to answer first-order questions. 
questions about the ways in which we express such thoughts in language. This distinction between first-order and second-order questions is useful because it helps to explain what has happened to philosophy in recent years. The majority of professional philosophers at the present day no longer believe that first-order questions can be answered by philosophers. Most professional philosophers today devote their attention exclusively to second-order questions, very often to questions having to do with the language in which thought is expressed. That is all to the good, for it is never harmful to be critical. The trouble is the wholesale giving up of first-order philosophical questions, which are the ones that are most likely to interest lay readers. In fact, philosophy today, like contemporary science or mathematics, is no longer being written for lay readers. Second-order questions are, almost by definition, ones of narrow appeal, and professional philosophers, like scientists, are not interested in the views of anyone but other experts. This makes modern philosophy very hard to read for non-philosophers, as difficult indeed as science for non-scientists. We cannot in this book give you any advice about how to read modern philosophy, as long as it is concerned exclusively with second-order questions. However, there are philosophical books that you can read, and that we believe you should read. These books ask the kinds of questions that we have called first-order questions. It is not accidental that they were also written primarily for a lay audience, rather than exclusively for other philosophers. Up to about 1930, or perhaps even a little later, philosophical books were written for the general reader. Philosophers hoped to be read by their peers, but they also wanted to be read by ordinary, intelligent men and women. Since the questions that they asked and tried to answer were of concern to everyone, they thought that everyone should know what they thought. All of the great classical works in philosophy, from Plato onward, were written from this point of view. These books are accessible to the lay reader. You can succeed in reading them if you wish to. Everything that we have to say in this chapter is intended to help you do that. On Philosophical Method It is important to understand what philosophical method consists in, at least insofar as philosophy is conceived as asking and trying to answer first-order questions. Suppose that you are a philosopher who is troubled by one of the childishly simple questions we have mentioned. The question, for instance, about the properties of everything that exists, or the question about the nature and causes of change. How do you proceed? If your question were scientific, you would know that to answer it you would have to perform some kind of special research, either by way of developing an experiment to test your answer, or by way of observing a wide range of phenomena. If your question were historical, you would know that you would also have to perform research, although of a different kind. But there is no experiment that will tell you what all existing things have in common, precisely in respect to having existence. There are no special kinds of phenomena that you can observe, no documents that you can seek out and read in order to find out what change is or why things change. All you can do is reflect upon the question. There is, in short, nothing to do but think. You are not thinking in a total vacuum, of course. Philosophy, when it is good, is not pure speculation, thinking divorced from experience. Ideas cannot be put together just any way. There are stringent tests of the validity of answers to philosophical questions. 
but such tests are based on common experience alone, on the experience that you already have because you're a human being, not a philosopher. You're as well acquainted through common experience with the phenomena of change as anybody else. Everything in the world about you manifests mutability. As far as the mere experience of change goes, you're in as good a position to think about its nature and causes as the greatest philosophers. What distinguishes them is that they thought about it extremely well. They formulated the most penetrating questions that could be asked about it, and they undertook to develop carefully and clearly worked out answers. By what means? Not by investigation. Not by having or trying to get more experience than the rest of us have. Rather, by thinking more profoundly about the experience than the rest of us have. Understanding this is not enough. We must also realize that not all of the questions that philosophers have asked and tried to answer are truly philosophical. They themselves were not always aware of this, and their ignorance or mistake in this crucial respect can cause unperceptive readers considerable difficulty. To avoid such difficulties, it is necessary to be able to distinguish the truly philosophical questions from the other questions that a philosopher may deal with, but that he should have waived and left for later scientific investigation to answer. The philosopher was misled by failing to see that such questions can be answered by scientific investigation, though he probably could not have known this at the time of his writing. An example of this is the question that ancient philosophers asked about the difference between the matter of terrestrial and celestial bodies. To their observation, unaided by telescopes, it appeared to be the case that the heavenly bodies changed only in place. They did not appear to come into being or to pass away like plants and animals, nor did they appear to change in size or quality. Because celestial bodies were subject to one kind of change only, local motion, whereas all terrestrial bodies change in other respects as well, the ancients concluded that they had to be composed of a different kind of matter. They did not surmise, nor could they probably have surmised, that with the invention of the telescope, the heavenly bodies would give us knowledge of their mutability beyond anything we can know through common experience. Hence, they took as a question that they thought it proper for philosophers to answer, one that should have been reserved for later scientific investigation. Such investigation began with Galileo's use of the telescope and his discovery of the moons of Jupiter. This led to the revolutionary assertion by Kepler that the matter of the heavenly bodies is exactly the same as the matter of bodies on earth. And this, in turn, laid the groundwork for Newton's formulation of a celestial mechanics in which the same laws of motion apply without qualification to all bodies wherever they are in the physical universe. On the whole, apart from the confusions that may result, the misinformation or lack of information about scientific matters that mars the work of the classical philosophers is irrelevant. The reason is that it is philosophical questions not scientific or historical ones that we are interested in when we read a philosophical work. And at the risk of repeating ourselves, we must emphasize that there is no other way than thinking to answer such questions. If we could build a telescope or microscope to examine the properties of existence, we should do so, of course. But no such instruments are possible. 
We do not want to give the impression that it is only philosophers who make mistakes of the sort we are discussing here. Suppose a scientist becomes troubled by the question about the kind of life a man ought to lead. This is a question in normative philosophy, and the only way to answer it is by thinking about it. But the scientist may not realize that, and instead suppose that some kind of experiment or research will give him an answer. He may decide to ask one thousand persons what kind of life they would like to lead and base his answer to the question on their answers. But it should be obvious that his answer in that case would be as irrelevant as Aristotle's speculations about the matter of the celestial bodies. On Philosophical Styles Although there is only one philosophical method, there are at least five styles of exposition that have been employed by the great philosophers of the Western tradition. The student or reader of philosophy should be able to distinguish between them and know the advantages and disadvantages of each. 1. The Philosophical Dialogue The first philosophical style of exposition, first in time if not in effectiveness, is the one adopted by Plato in his Dialogues. The style is conversational, even colloquial. A number of men discuss a subject with Socrates, or in the later dialogues with a speaker known as the Athenian stranger. Often, after a certain amount of fumbling, Socrates embarks on a series of questions and comments that help to elucidate the subject. In the hands of a master like Plato, this style is heuristic. That is, it allows the reader, indeed leads him, to discover things for himself. When the style is enriched by the high drama, some would say the high comedy, of the story of Socrates, it becomes enormously powerful. A master like Plato, we said, but there is no one like Plato. Other philosophers have attempted dialogues, for example Cicero and Berkeley, but with little success. Their dialogues are flat, dull, almost unreadable. It is a measure of the greatness of Plato that he was able to write philosophical dialogues that, for wit, charm, and profundity, are the equal of any books ever produced by anyone on any subject. Yet it may be a sign of the inappropriateness of this style of philosophizing that no one except Plato has ever been able to handle it effectively. That Plato did so goes without saying. All Western philosophy, Whitehead once remarked, is but a footnote to Plato. And the later Greeks themselves had a saying, Everywhere I go in my head, I meet Plato coming back. Those statements, however, should not be misunderstood. Plato himself had apparently no philosophical system, no doctrine, unless it was that there is no doctrine that we should simply keep talking and asking questions. For Plato and Socrates before him did indeed manage to raise most of the important questions that subsequent philosophers have felt it necessary to deal with. 2. The Philosophical Treatise or Essay Aristotle was Plato's best pupil. He studied under him for twenty years. He is said to have also written dialogues, but none of these survives entirely. What does survive are curiously difficult essays or treatises on a number of different subjects. Aristotle was obviously a clear thinker but the difficulty of the surviving works has led scholars to suggest that they were originally notes for lectures or books, either Aristotle's own notes or notes taken down by a student who heard the master speak. We may never know the truth of the matter, but in any event, 
the Aristotelian treatise was a new style in philosophy. The subjects covered by Aristotle in his treatises, and the various styles adopted by him in presenting his findings, also helped to establish the branches and approaches of philosophy in the succeeding centuries. There are, first of all, the so-called popular works, mostly dialogues which only fragments have come down to us. Then there are the documentary collections. The major one that we know about was a collection of 158 separate constitutions of Greek states. Only one of these survives, the Constitution of Athens, which was recovered from a papyrus in 1890. Finally, there are the major treatises, some of which, like the physics and metaphysics, or the ethics, politics, and poetics, are purely philosophical works, theoretical or normative, some of which, like the book On the Soul, are mixtures of philosophical theory and early scientific investigation, and some of which, like the biological treatises, are mainly scientific works in the field of natural history. Immanuel Kant, although he was probably more influenced by Plato in a philosophical sense, adopted Aristotle's style of exposition. His treatises are finished works of art, unlike Aristotle's in this respect. They state the main problem first, go through the subject matter in a thorough and businesslike way, and treat special problems by the way or at the last. The clarity of both Kant and Aristotle may be said to consist in the order that they impose on a subject. We see a philosophical beginning, middle, and end. We also, particularly in the case of Aristotle, are provided with accounts of the views and objections of others, both philosophers and ordinary men. Thus, in one sense, the style of the treatise is similar to the style of the dialogue. But the element of drama is missing from the Kantian or Aristotelian treatise. A philosophical view is developed through straightforward exposition, rather than through the conflict of positions and opinions, as in Plato. 3. The Meeting of Objections The philosophical style developed in the Middle Ages and perfected by St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica has likenesses to both of those already discussed. Plato, we have pointed out, raises most of the persistent philosophical problems, and Socrates, as we might have observed, asks in the course of the dialogues the kind of simple but profound questions that children ask. And Aristotle, as we have also pointed out, recognizes the objections of other philosophers and replies to them. Aquinas' style is a combination of question-raising and objection-meeting. The Summa is divided into parts, treatises, questions, and articles. The form of all the articles is the same. A question is posed. The opposite, wrong, answer to it is given. Arguments are adduced in support of that wrong answer. These are countered first by an authoritative text, often a quotation from Scripture, and finally, Aquinas introduces his own answer or solution with the words, I answer that. Having given his own view of the matter, he then replies to each of the arguments for the wrong answer. The neatness and order of this style are appealing to men with orderly minds, but that is not the most important feature of the Thomistic way of philosophizing. Rather, it is Aquinas' explicit recognition of conflicts, 
his reporting of different views, and his attempt to meet all possible objections to his own solutions. The idea that the truth somehow evolves out of opposition and conflict was a common medieval one. Philosophers in Aquinas' time accepted as a matter of course that they should be prepared to defend their views in open, public disputes, which were often attended by crowds of students and other interested persons. The civilization of the Middle Ages was essentially oral, partly because books were few and hard to come by. A proposition was not accepted as true unless it could meet the test of open discussion. The philosopher was not a solitary thinker, but instead faced his opponents in the intellectual marketplace, as Socrates might have said. Thus, the Summa Theologica is imbued with the spirit of debate and discussion. 4. The Systemization of Philosophy In the seventeenth century, a fourth style of philosophical exposition was developed by two notable philosophers, Descartes and Spinoza. Fascinated by the promised success of mathematics in organizing man's knowledge of nature, they attempted to organize philosophy itself in a way akin to the organization of mathematics. Descartes was a great mathematician, and although perhaps wrong on some points, a redoubtable philosopher. What he tried to do, essentially, was to clothe philosophy in mathematical dress, to give it the certainty and formal structure that Euclid, two thousand years before, had given geometry. Descartes was not wholly unsuccessful in this, and his demand for clarity and distinctness in thinking was to some extent justified in the chaotic intellectual climate of his time. He also wrote philosophical treatises in a more or less traditional form, including a set of replies to objections to his views. Spinoza carried the conception even farther. His ethics is written in strict mathematical form, with propositions, proofs, corollaries, lemas, scoliums, and the like. However, the subject matter of metaphysics and of morals is not very satisfactorily handled in this manner, which is more appropriate for geometry and other mathematical subjects than for philosophical ones. A sign of this is that when reading Spinoza you can skip a great deal, in exactly the same way that you can skip in Newton. You cannot skip anything in Kant or Aristotle, because the line of reasoning is continuous, and you cannot skip anything in Plato any more than you would skip a part of a play or a poem. Probably there are no absolute rules of rhetoric. Nevertheless, it is questionable whether it is possible to write a satisfactory philosophical work in mathematical form, as Spinoza tried to do, or a satisfactory scientific work in dialogue form, as Galileo tried to do. The fact is that both of these men failed, to some extent, to communicate what they wished to communicate, and it seems likely that the form they chose was a major reason for the failure. 5. The Aphoristic Style There is one other style of philosophical exposition that deserves mention, although it is probably not as important as the other four. This is the aphoristic style adopted by Nietzsche in such works as Thus Spake Zarathustra and by certain modern French philosophers. The popularity of this style during the past century is perhaps owing to the great interest among Western readers in the wisdom books of the East, which are written in an aphoristic style. 
Destalme also owes something to the example of Pascal's pensée. But, of course, Pascal did not intend to leave his great work in the form of short, enigmatic statements. He died before he could finish writing out the book in essay form. The great advantage of the aphoristic form in philosophy is that it is heuristic. The reader has the impression that more is being said than is actually said, for he does much of the work of thinking, of making connections between statements and of constructing arguments for positions, himself. At the same time, however, this is the great disadvantage of the style, which is really not expositional at all. The author is like a hit-and-run driver. He touches on a subject, he suggests a truth or insight about it, and then runs off to another subject without properly defending what he has said. Thus, although the aphoristic style is enjoyable for those who are poetically inclined, it is irritating for serious philosophers who would rather try to follow and criticize an author's line of thought. As far as we know, there is no other important style of philosophical exposition that has been employed in our Western tradition. A work like Lucretius's On the Nature of Things is not an exception. It was originally in verse, but as far as its style goes, it is no different from other philosophical essays. And in any event, we ordinarily read it nowadays in prose translations. This means that all of the great philosophers have employed one or the other of these five styles. Sometimes, of course, a philosopher tries more than one. The treatise or essay is probably the most common form, both in the past and in the present. It can range all the way from highly formal and difficult works like those of Kant to popular philosophical essays or letters. Dialogues are notoriously hard to write, and the geometrical style is enormously difficult both to write and to read. The aphoristic style is highly unsatisfactory from a philosophical point of view. The Thomistic style has not been used very much in recent times. Perhaps it would not be acceptable to modern readers, but that seems a shame, considering all its advantages. Hints for Reading Philosophy It is perhaps clear from the discussion so far that the most important thing to discover in reading any philosophical work is the question or questions it tries to answer. The questions may be stated explicitly or they may be implicit to a certain extent. In either case, you must try to find out what they are. How the author answers these questions will be deeply affected by his controlling principles. These may be stated too, but that is not always the case. We have already quoted Basil Willey on the difficulty and the importance of discovering the hidden and unstated assumptions of an author, to say nothing of our own. This goes for any book. It applies to works in philosophy with particular force. The great philosophers cannot be charged with having tried to hide their assumptions dishonestly or with having been unclear in their definitions and postulations. It is precisely the mark of a great philosopher that he makes these things clearer than other writers can. Nevertheless, every great philosopher has certain controlling principles that underlie his work. These are easy enough to see if he states them in the book you are reading but he may not have done so, reserving their treatment for another book, or he may never treat them explicitly, but instead allow them to pervade every one of his works. It is difficult to give examples of such controlling principles. Any that we might proffer would probably be disputed by philosophers, and we do not here have space to defend our choices. Nevertheless, we could mention the controlling idea of Plato, 
that conversation about philosophical subjects is perhaps the most important of all human activities. Now this idea is seldom explicitly stated in the dialogues, although Socrates may be saying it when, in the Apology, he asserts that the unexamined life is not worth living, and Plato mentions it in the seventh letter. The point is that Plato expresses this view in a number of other places, though not in so many words. For example, in the Protagoras, where the audience is shown as disapproving of Protagoras's unwillingness to continue talking to Socrates. Another example is that of Cephalus, in Book One of the Republic, who happens to have other business to attend to and so departs. Plato seems to be saying here, though not explicitly, that it is a betrayal of man's deepest nature to refuse to join for whatever reason in the search for truth. But as we have noted, this is not ordinarily cited as one of Plato's ideas, because it is seldom explicitly discussed in his works. We can find other examples in Aristotle. In the first place, it is always important to recognize in reading any Aristotelian work that things said in other works are relevant to the discussion. Thus, the basic principles of logic expounded in the Organon are assumed in the physics. In the second place, owing partly to the fact that the treatises are not finished works of art, their controlling principles are not always stated with satisfactory clarity. The ethics is about many things, happiness, habit, virtue, pleasure, and so forth. The list could be very long, but the controlling insight is discovered only by the very careful reader. This is the insight that happiness is the whole of the good, not the highest good, for in that case it would be only one good among others. Recognizing this, we see that happiness does not consist in self-perfection or the goods of self-improvement, even though these constitute the highest among partial goods. Happiness, as Aristotle says, is the quality of a whole life. And he means whole not only in a temporal sense, but also in terms of all the aspects from which a life can be viewed. The happy man is one, as we might say nowadays, who puts it all together and keeps it there throughout his life. This insight is controlling in the sense that it affects almost all of the other ideas and insights in the ethics. But it is not stated nearly as explicitly as it might be. One more example. Kant's mature thought is often known as critical philosophy. He himself contrasted criticism to dogmatism, which he imputed to many previous philosophers. By dogmatism, he meant the presumption that the human intellect can arrive at the most important truths by pure thinking, without being aware of its own limitations. What is first required, according to Kant, is a critical survey and assessment of the mind's resources and powers. Thus the limitation of the mind is a controlling principle in Kant, in a way that it is not in any philosopher who precedes him in time. But while this is perfectly clear because explicitly stated in the Critique of Pure Reason, it is not stated because it is assumed in the Critique of Judgment, 
Kant's major work in aesthetics. Nevertheless, it is controlling there as well. This is all we can say about finding the controlling principles in a philosophical book, because we are not sure that we can tell you how to discover them. Sometimes it takes years to do this, and many readings and rereadings. Nevertheless, it is the ideal goal of a good and thorough reading, and you should keep in mind that it is ultimately what you must try to do if you are to understand your author. Despite the difficulty of discovering these controlling principles, however, we do not recommend that you take the shortcut of reading books about the philosophers, their lives and opinions. The discovery you come to on your own will be much more valuable than someone else's ideas. Once you have found an author's controlling principles, you will want to decide whether he adheres to them throughout his work. Unfortunately, philosophers, even the best of them, often do not do so. Consistency, Emerson said, is the hobgoblin of little minds. That's a very carefree statement, but although it is probably wise to remember it, there is no doubt either that inconsistency in a philosopher is a serious problem. If a philosopher is inconsistent, you have to decide which of two sets of propositions he really means, the first principles, as he states them, or the conclusions, which do not in fact follow from the principles as stated, or you may decide that neither is valid. The reading of philosophical works has special aspects that relate to the difference between philosophy and science. We are here considering only theoretical works in philosophy, such as metaphysical treatises or books about the philosophy of nature. The philosophical problem is to explain, not to describe, as science does, the nature of things. Philosophy asks about more than the connections of phenomena, it seeks to penetrate to the ultimate causes and conditions that underlie them. Such problems are satisfactorily explored only when the answers to them are supported by clear arguments and analysis. The major effort of the reader, therefore, must be with respect to the terms and the initial propositions. Although the philosopher, like the scientist, has a technical terminology, the words that express his terms are usually taken from common speech, but used in a very special sense. This demands special care from the reader. If he does not overcome the tendency to use familiar words in a familiar way, he will probably make gibberish and nonsense of the book. The basic terms of philosophical discussions are, of course, abstract, but so are those of science. No general knowledge is expressible, except in abstract terms, there is nothing particularly difficult about abstractions. We use them every day of our lives and in every sort of conversation. However, the words abstract and concrete seem to trouble many persons. Whenever you talk generally about anything, you're using abstractions. What you perceive through your senses is always concrete and particular. What you think with your mind is always abstract and general. To understand an abstract word is to have the idea it expresses. Having an idea is just another way of saying that you understand some general aspect of the things you experience concretely. You cannot see or touch or even imagine the general aspect thus referred to. If you could, there would be no difference between the senses and the mind. People who try to imagine what ideas refer to befuddle themselves and end up with a hopeless feeling about all abstractions. 
Just as inductive arguments should be the reader's main focus in the case of scientific books, so here, in the case of philosophy, you must pay closest attention to the philosopher's principles. They may be either things he asks you to assume with him, or matters that he calls self-evident. There's no trouble about assumptions. Make them to see what follows, even if you yourself have contrary presuppositions. It's a good mental exercise to pretend that you believe something that you really do not believe, and the clearer you are about your own prejudgments, the more likely you will be not to misjudge those made by others. It is the other sort of principles that may cause trouble. Few philosophical books fail to state some propositions that the author regards as self-evident. Such propositions are drawn directly from experience, rather than proved by other propositions. The thing to remember is that the experience from which they are drawn, as we have noted more than once, is unlike the scientist's special experience, the common experience of mankind. The philosopher does no work in laboratories, no research in the field. Hence, to understand and test a philosopher's leading principles, you do not need the extrinsic aid of special experience obtained by methodical investigation. He refers you to your own common sense and daily observation of the world in which you live. In other words, the method according to which you should read a philosophical book is very similar to the method according to which it is written. A philosopher, faced with a problem, can do nothing but think about it. A reader, faced with a philosophical book, can do nothing but read it, which means, as we know, thinking about it. There are no other aids except the mind itself. But the essential loneliness of a reader and book is precisely the situation that we imagined at the beginning of our long discussion of the rules of analytical reading. Thus you can see why we say that the rules of reading, as we have stated and explained them, apply more directly to the reading of philosophical books than to the reading of any other kind. On Making Up Your Own Mind A good theoretical work in philosophy is as free from oratory and propaganda as a good scientific treatise. You do not have to be concerned about the personality of the author or investigate his social and economic background. There is utility, however, in reading the works of other great philosophers who have dealt with the same problems as your author. The philosophers have carried on long conversation with each other in the history of thought. You'd better listen in on it before you make up your mind about what any of them says. The fact that philosophers disagree should not trouble you for two reasons. First, the fact of disagreement, if it is persistent, may point to a great unsolved and perhaps insoluble problem. It is good to know where the true mysteries are. Second, the disagreements of others are relatively unimportant. Your responsibility is only to make up your own mind. In the presence of the long conversation that the philosophers have carried on through their books, you must judge what is true and what is false. When you have read a philosophical book well, and that means reading other philosophers on the same subject, too, you're in a position to judge. It is indeed the most distinctive mark of philosophical questions, that everyone must answer them for himself. Taking the opinions of others is not solving them, but evading them. And your answers must be solidly grounded, with arguments to back them up. This means, above all, that you cannot depend on the testimony of experts, as you may have to do in the case of science. 
The reason is that the questions philosophers ask are simply more important than the questions asked by anyone else, except children. A note on theology. There are two kinds of theology, natural theology and dogmatic theology. Natural theology is a branch of philosophy. It is the last chapter, as it were, in metaphysics. If you ask, for example, whether causation is an endless process, whether everything is caused, you may find yourself, if you answer in the affirmative, involved in an infinite regress. Therefore, you may have to posit some originating cause that is not itself caused. Aristotle called this uncaused cause an unmoved mover. You could give it other names. You could even say that it was merely another name for God. But the point is that you would have arrived at the conception by the unaided effort, the natural working of your mind. Dogmatic theology differs from philosophy in that its first principles are articles of faith adhered to by the communicants of some religion. A work of dogmatic theology always depends upon dogmas and the authority of a church that proclaims them. If you are not of the faith, if you do not belong to the church, you can nevertheless read such a theological book well by treating its dogmas with the same respect you treat the assumptions of a mathematician. But you must always keep in mind that an article of faith is not something that the faithful assume. Faith, for those who have it, is the most certain form of knowledge, not a tentative opinion. Understanding this seems to be difficult for many readers today. Typically, they make either or both of two mistakes in dealing with dogmatic theology. The first mistake is to refuse to accept, even temporarily, the articles of faith that are the first principles of the author. As a result, the reader continues to struggle with these first principles, never really paying attention to the book itself. The second mistake is to assume that, because the first principles are dogmatic, the arguments based on them, the reasoning that they support, and the conclusions to which they lead are all dogmatic in the same way. It is true enough, of course, if certain principles are accepted and the reasoning that is based on them is cogent, that the conclusions must then be accepted too, at least to the extent that the principles are. But if the reasoning is defective, the most acceptable first principles will lead to invalid conclusions. We are speaking here, as you can see, of the difficulties that face a non-believing reader of a theological work. His task is to accept the first principles as true while he is reading the book, and then to read it with all the care that any good expository work deserves. The faithful reader of a work that is essential to his faith has other difficulties to face. However, these problems are not confined to reading theology. How to read canonical books There's one very interesting kind of book, one kind of reading, that has not yet been discussed. We use the term canonical to refer to such books. In an older tradition, we might have called them sacred or holy. But these words no longer apply to all such works, though they still apply to some of them. A prime example is the Holy Bible, when it is read not as literature, but instead is the revealed Word of God. For Orthodox Marxists, however, the works of Marx must be read in much the same way as the Bible must be read by Orthodox Jews or Christians. And Mao Zedong's Little Red Book 
as an equally canonical character for a faithful Chinese communist. The notion of a canonical book can be extended beyond these obvious examples. Consider any institution, a church, a political party, a society, that, among other things, one, is a teaching institution, two, has a body of doctrine to teach, and three, has a faithful and obedient membership. The members of such organizations read reverentially. They do not, even cannot, question the authorized or right reading of the books that to them are canonical. The faithful are debarred by their faith from finding error in the sacred text, to say nothing of finding nonsense there. Orthodox Jews read the Old Testament in this way. Christians, the New Testament. Muslims, the Koran. Orthodox Marxists, the works of Marx and Lenin. And, depending on the political climate, those of Stalin. Orthodox Freudian psychoanalysts, the works of Freud. U.S. Army officers, the infantry manual. And you can think of many more examples by yourself. In fact, almost all of us, even if we have not quite reached it, have approached the situation in which we must read canonically. A fledgling lawyer intent on passing the bar exams must read certain texts in a certain way in order to attain a perfect score. So with doctors and other professionals, and indeed so with all of us when, as students, we were required at the peril of failure to read a text according to our professor's interpretation of it. Of course, not all professors fail their students for disagreeing with them. The characteristics of this kind of reading are perhaps summed up in the word orthodox, which is almost always applicable. The word comes from two Greek roots, meaning right opinion. These are the books for which there is one and only one right reading. Any other reading or interpretation is fraught with peril, from the loss of an A to the damnation of one's soul. This characteristic carries with it an obligation. The faithful reader of a canonical book is obliged to make sense out of it and to find it true in one or another sense of true. If he cannot do this by himself, he is obliged to go to someone who can. This may be a priest or a rabbi, or it may be his superior in the party hierarchy, or it may be his professor. In any case, he is obliged to accept the resolution of his problem that is offered him. He reads essentially without freedom. But in return for this, he gains a kind of satisfaction that is possibly never obtained when reading other books. Here, in fact, we must stop. The problem of reading the holy book, if you have faith that it is the word of God, is the most difficult problem in the whole field of reading. There have been more books written about how to read Scripture than about all other aspects of the art of reading together. The Word of God is obviously the most difficult writing men can read, but it is also, if you believe it is the Word of God, the most important to read. The effort of the faithful has been duly proportionate to the difficulty of the task. It would be true to say that in the European tradition, at least, the Bible is the book in more senses than one. It has been not only the most widely read, but also the most carefully read book of all. Chapter 19 How to Read Social Science The concepts and terminology of the social sciences pervade almost everything we read today.
Modern journalism, for example, does not limit itself to reporting facts, except in the kind of shorthand, who, what, why, when, where, news story, that one finds on the front page of a newspaper. Journalists, much more commonly, enmesh the facts in interpretation, commentary, analysis of the news. These interpretations and comments draw on the concepts and terminology of the social sciences. These concepts and this terminology are also reflected in the vast number of current books and articles that may be grouped together under the heading of social criticism. We are confronted with a continuous flow of literature on such subjects as race problems, crime, law enforcement, poverty, education, welfare, war and peace, good and bad government. Much of this literature borrows its ideology and language from the social sciences. The literature of social sciences is not confined to non-fiction. There is also a large and important category of contemporary writing that might be termed social science fiction. Here the aim is to create artificial models of society that allow us, for example, to explore the social consequences of technological innovation, the organization of social power, the kinds of property and ownership, and the distribution of wealth are variously described, deplored, or lauded in novels, plays, stories, moving pictures, television shows. Insofar as they do this, they may be said to have social significance or to contain relevant messages. At the same time, they draw on and disseminate elements of the social sciences. Furthermore, there is hardly any social, economic, or political problem that has not been tackled by specialists in these fields either on their own or by invitation from officials who are actively coping with these problems. Specialists in the social sciences help to formulate the problems and are called upon to help in dealing with them. Far from the least important factor in the growing pervasiveness of the social sciences is their introduction at the high school level and in the junior and community colleges. In fact, student enrollments in social science courses are running far ahead of enrollments in the more traditional literature and language courses, and enrollments in social science courses greatly exceed those in courses dealing with the pure sciences. What is social science? We have been talking of social science as if it were a single entity. That is hardly the case. Which, in fact, are the social sciences? One way to answer the question is to see what departments and disciplines universities group under this name. Social science divisions usually include departments of anthropology, economics, politics, and sociology. Why do they not ordinarily include as well schools of law, education, business, social service, and public administration, all of which draw on the concepts and methods of the social sciences for their development? The reason commonly given for the separation of these schools from the social science divisions is that the main purpose of such schools is to train for professional work outside of the university, while the previously mentioned departments are more exclusively dedicated to the pursuit of systematic knowledge of human society, an activity that usually goes on within the university. There is presently a trend in universities toward the establishment of centers and institutes for interdisciplinary studies. These centers cut across the conventional social science departments and professional schools and include studies in the theories and methods of statistics, demography, cephology, 
the science of elections and polling, policy and decision-making, recruitment and treatment of personnel, public administration, human ecology, and many more. Such centers are producing studies and reports that incorporate findings of a dozen or more of these specialties. Considerable sophistication is required even to discern the various strands of these efforts, let alone judge the validity of the findings and conclusions. What about psychology? Those social scientists who interpret their field strictly tend to exclude psychology on the grounds that it concerns itself with individual and personal characteristics, while the social sciences proper focus on cultural, institutional, and environmental factors. Those who are less strict, while conceding that physiological psychology should be subsumed under the biological sciences, hold that psychology, both normal and abnormal, should be regarded as a social science on the grounds of the inseparability of the individual from his social environment. Psychology, incidentally, is a prime example of a social science area that is currently enjoying great popularity among students. It is possible that enrollments in psychology across the country are larger than in any other subject, and the literature of psychology, at every level from the most technical to the most popular, is enormous. What of the behavioral sciences? Where do they fit into the social science picture? As originally used, the term behavioral science included sociology and anthropology and the behavioral aspects of biology, economics, geography, law, psychology, and psychiatry, and political science. The accent on behavior served to emphasize observable, measurable behavior capable of being systematically investigated and of producing verifiable findings. Recently, the term behavioral sciences has come to be used almost as a synonym of the term social sciences, but many purists object to this usage. Finally, what about history? It is acknowledged that the social sciences draw on the study of history for data and for exemplifications of their generalizations. However, although history, viewed as accounts of particular events and persons, may be scientific in the minimal sense of constituting systematic knowledge, it is not a science in the sense that of itself it yields systematic knowledge of patterns or laws of behavior and development. Is it possible, then, to define what we mean by social science? We think so, at least for the purposes of this chapter. Such fields as anthropology, economics, politics, and sociology constitute a kind of central core of social science which almost all social scientists would include in any definition. In addition, we think it would be conceded by most social scientists that much, though not all, of the literature of such fields as law, education, and public administration, and some of the literature of such fields as business and social service, together with a considerable portion of psychological literature, falls within the confines of a reasonable definition. We will assume that such a definition although admittedly imprecise, is clear to you in what follows. The Apparent Ease of Reading Social Science A great deal of social science writing seems like the easiest possible material to read. The data are often drawn from experiences familiar to the reader. 
In this respect, social science is like poetry or philosophy, and the style of exposition is usually narrative, already familiar to the reader through his reading of fiction and history. In addition, we have all become familiar with the jargon of social science and use it often, such terms as culture, cross, counter, and sub, in-group, alienation, status, input, output, infrastructure, ethnic, behavioral, consensus, and scores like them, tend to appear in almost every conversation and in almost everything we read. Consider the word society itself. What a chameleon-like word it is. What a host of adjectives can be placed in front of it, while throughout it continues to convey the broad notion of people living together rather than in isolation. We hear of the aberrant society, the abortive society, the acquiescent society, the acquisitive society, the affluent society, and we can continue on through the alphabet until we reach the zymotic society, which is one that is in a continuous state of ferment, not unlike our own. Social, as an adjective, is also a word of many and familiar meanings. There is social power, social pressure, and social promise. And then, of course, there are the ubiquitous social problems. The last phrase, indeed, is a fine example of the specious ease that is involved in both the reading and the writing of social science literature. We would be willing to wager that in the last few months, if not the last few weeks, you have read and even possibly written the phrase, political, economic, and social problems. When you read or wrote it, you were probably clear as to what was meant by political and economic problems. But what did you or the author mean by social problems? The jargon and metaphors of much social science writing, together with the deep feeling that often imbues it, makes for deceptively easy reading. The references are to matters that are readily familiar to the reader. Indeed, he reads or hears about them almost daily. Furthermore, his attitudes and feelings regarding them are usually firmly developed. Philosophy, too, deals with the world as we commonly know it. But we are not ordinarily committed on philosophical questions. But on matters with which social science deals, we are likely to have strong opinions. Difficulties of Reading Social Science Paradoxically, the very factors we have discussed, the factors which make social science seem easy to read, also make it difficult to read. Consider the last factor mentioned, for instance, the commitment that you as a reader are likely to have to some view of the matter your author is considering. Many readers fear that it would be disloyal to their commitment to stand apart and impersonally question what they are reading. Yet this is necessary whenever you read analytically. Such a stance is implied by the rules of reading, at least by the rules of structural outlining and interpretation. If you're going to answer the first two questions that should be asked of anything you read, you must, as it were, check your opinions at the door. You cannot understand a book if you refuse to hear what it is saying. The very familiarity of the terms and propositions in social science writing is also an obstacle to understanding. Many social scientists recognize this themselves. They object vigorously to the use of more or less technical terms and concepts in popular journalism and other writings. An example of such a concept is that of the Gross National Product, GNP. 
In serious economic writing, the concept is employed in a relatively limited sense. But many reporters and columnists, some social scientists say, make the concept do too much work. They use it too widely, without really understanding what it means. Obviously, if the writer of something you are reading is confused about his use of a key term, you, as a reader, must be so too. Let us try to make this point clear by drawing a distinction between the social sciences on the one hand and the so-called hard sciences, physics, chemistry, and the like, on the other hand. We have observed that the author of a scientific book, taking scientific in the latter sense, makes clear what he assumes and what he desires to prove, and also makes sure that his terms and propositions are easy to spot, since coming to terms and finding the propositions is a main part of reading any expository work. This means that much of the work is done for you in the case of such books. You may still have difficulty with the mathematical form of presentation, and if you do not have a firm grasp of the arguments and of the experimental or observational basis of the conclusions, you will find it hard to criticize the book. That is, to answer the questions, is it true, and what of it? Nevertheless, there is an important sense in which the reading of this kind of scientific books is easier than the reading of most other kinds of expository works. Another way to say what it is that the hard scientist does is to say that he stipulates his usage. That is, he informs you what terms are essential to his argument and how he's going to use them. Such stipulations usually occur at the beginning of the book in the form of definitions, postulates, axioms, and so forth. Since stipulation of usage is characteristic of these fields, it has been said that they are like games or have a game structure. Stipulation of usage is like establishing the rules of a game. If you want to play poker, you do not dispute the rule that three of a kind is a better hand than two pairs. If you want to play bridge, you do not argue with the convention that a queen takes a jack in the same suit, or that the highest trump takes any other card in a suit contract. Similarly, you do not dispute a hard scientist's stipulations in reading his book. You accept them and go on from there. Until quite recently, at least, stipulation of usage was not as common in the social sciences as it is in the hard sciences. One reason for this is that the social sciences were typically not mathematicized. Another is that stipulation of usage in the social or behavioral sciences is harder to do. It is one thing to define a circle or an isosceles triangle. It is quite another to define an economic depression or mental health. Even if a social scientist attempts to define such terms, his readers are inclined to question his usage. As a result, the social scientist must continue to struggle with his own terms throughout his work, and his struggle creates problems for his reader. The most important source of difficulty in reading social science derives from the fact that this field of literature is a mixed, rather than a pure, kind of expository writing. We have seen how history is a mixture of fiction and science, and how we must read it with that in mind. We're familiar with this kind of mixture. We've had a great deal of experience with it. The situation in social science is quite different. Much social science is a mixture of science, philosophy, and history, often with some fiction thrown in for good measure. 
If social science were always the same kind of mixture, we could become familiar with it as we have with history, but this is far from the case. The mixture itself shifts from book to book, and the reader is confronted with the task of identifying the various strands that go to make up what he is reading. These strands may change in the course of a single book, as well as in different books. It's no easy job to separate them out. You will recall that the first step the analytical reader has to take is to answer the question, what kind of book is this? In the case of fiction, that question is relatively easy to answer. In the case of science and philosophy, it is also relatively easy. And even if history is a mixed form, at least the reader ordinarily knows that he is reading history. But the various strands that go to make up social science, sometimes interwoven in this pattern, sometimes in that, sometimes in still another, make the question very hard to answer when we are reading a work in any of the fields involved. The problem, in fact, is precisely as difficult as the problem of defining social science. Nevertheless, the analytical reader must somehow manage to answer the question. It is not only his first task, but also his most important. If he is able to say what strands go to make up the book he is reading, he will have moved a good way toward understanding it. Outlining a work in social science poses no special problems, but coming to terms with the author, as we have already suggested, may be extremely difficult, owing to the relative inability of the author to stipulate his usage. Nevertheless, some common understanding of the key terms is usually possible. From terms, we move to propositions and arguments, and here again there's no special problem if the book's a good one. But the last question, what of it, requires considerable restraint on the part of the reader. It is here that the situation we described earlier may occur, namely the situation in which the reader says, I cannot fault the author's conclusions, but I nevertheless disagree with them. This comes about, of course, because of the prejudgments that the reader is likely to have concerning the author's approach and his conclusions. Reading Social Science Literature More than once in the course of this chapter we have employed the phrase social science literature instead of social science book. The reason is that it is customary in social science to read several books about a subject rather than one book for its own sake. This is not only because social science is a relatively new field with as yet but few classic texts. It is also because when reading social science, we often have our eye primarily on a particular matter or problem rather than on a particular author or book. We are interested in law enforcement, for example, and we read half a dozen works on the subject. Or our interest may concern race relations or education or taxation or the problems of local government. Typically, there is no single authoritative work on any of these subjects, and we must therefore read several. One sign of this is that social science authors themselves, in order to keep up with the times, must constantly bring out new, revised editions of their work, and new works supersede older ones and rapidly render them obsolete. To some extent, a similar situation obtains in philosophy, as we've already observed. Fully to understand a philosopher, you should make some attempt to read the philosophers your author himself has read, the philosophers who have influenced him. 
To some extent, it is also true in history, where we suggested that if you want to discover the truth of the past, you'd better read several books about it rather than one. But in those cases, the likelihood that you would find one major authoritative work was much greater. In social science, that is not so common, and so the necessity of reading several works rather than one is much more urgent. The rules of analytical reading are not in themselves applicable to the reading of several works on the same subject. They apply to each of the works that is read, of course, and if you want to read any of them well, you have to observe them. But new rules of reading are required as we pass from the third level of reading, analytical reading, to the fourth, syntopical reading. We are now prepared to tackle that fourth level, having come to see, because of this characteristic of social science, the need for it. Pointing this out makes it clear why we relegated the discussion of the social sciences to the last chapter in Part 3. It should now be clear why we organized the discussion in the way we did. We began with the reading of practical books, which are different from all others because of the special obligation to act that the reader is under if he agrees with and accepts what he is reading. We then treated fiction and poetry, which pose special problems that are unlike those of expository books. Finally, we dealt with three types of theoretical expository writing, science and mathematics, philosophy, and social science. Social science came last because of the need to read it syntopically. Thus, the present chapter serves as both the end of Part 3 and an introduction to Part 4. Part 4 The Ultimate Goals of Reading Chapter 20 The Fourth Level of Reading Syntopical Reading so far, we've not said anything specific about how to read two or more books on the same subject. We have tried to suggest that when certain subjects are discussed, more than one book is relevant. And we've also from time to time mentioned, in a very informal way, certain related books and authors in various fields. Knowing that more than one book is relevant to a particular question is the first requirement in any project of syntopical reading. Knowing which books should be read in a general way is the second requirement. The second requirement is a great deal harder to satisfy than the first. The difficulty becomes evident as soon as we examine the phrase two or more books on the same subject. What do we mean by the same subject? Perhaps this is clear enough when the subject is a single historical period or event. But in hardly any other sphere is there much clarity to be found. Gone with the Wind and War and Peace are both novels about a great war. But there, for the most part, the resemblance stops. Stendhal's The Charter House of Parma is about the same conflict, that is, the Napoleonic Wars, that Tolstoy's novel is about. But of course neither is about the war, or indeed about war in general, as such. War provides the context or background of both stories, as it does for much of human life, but it is the stories on which the authors rivet our attention. We may learn something about the war. In fact, Tolstoy once said that he had learned much of what he knew about battles from Stendhal's account of the Battle of Waterloo. But we do not go to these novels or any others if our primary intention is to study war. You could have anticipated that this situation would obtain in the case of fiction. It is inherent in the fact 
that the novelist does not communicate in the same way that an expository writer does. But the situation obtains in the case of expository works as well. Suppose, for example, that you're interested in reading about the idea of love. Since the literature of love is vast, you would have relatively little difficulty in creating a bibliography of books to read. Suppose that you've done that by asking advisors, by searching through the card catalog of a good library, and by examining the bibliography in a good scholarly treatise on the subject. And suppose, in addition, that you have confined yourself to expository works, despite the undoubted interest of novelists and poets in the subject. We will explain why it would be advisable to do this later. You now begin to examine the books in your bibliography. What do you find? Even a cursory perusal reveals a very great range of reference. There is hardly a single human action that has not been called, in one way or another, an act of love. Nor is the range confined to the human sphere. If you proceed far enough in your reading, you will find that love has been attributed to almost everything in the universe. That is, everything that exists has been said by someone either to love or to be loved, or both. Stones are said to love the center of the earth. The upward motion of fire is called a function of its love. The attraction of iron filings to a magnet is described as an effect of love. Tracts have been written on the love life of amoebae, paramecia, snails, and ants, to say nothing of most of the so-called higher animals, who are said to love their masters as well as one another. When we come to human beings, we discover that authors speak and write of their love for men, women, a woman, a man, children, themselves, mankind, money, art, domesticity, principles, a cause, an occupation or profession, adventure, security, ideas, a country life, loving itself, a beefsteak, or wine. In certain learned treatises, the motions of the heavenly bodies are said to be inspired by love. In others, angels and devils are differentiated by the quality of their love. And, of course, God is said to be love. Confronted with this enormous range of reference, how are we to state what the subject is that we are investigating? Can we be sure that there is a single subject? When one person says, I love cheese, and another says, I love football, and a third says, I love mankind, are they all three using the word in any sense that is common? After all, one eats cheese, but not football or mankind. One plays football, but not cheese or mankind. And whatever I love mankind means, that meaning does not seem to be applicable to cheese or football. And yet all three do use the same word. Is there in fact some deep reason for that? Some reason that is not immediately apparent on the surface? Difficult as that question is, can we say that we have identified the same subject until we have answered it? Faced with this chaotic situation, you may decide to limit the enquiry to human love, to love between human beings, of the same sex or different sexes, of the same age or different ages, and so forth. That would rule out the three statements we have just discussed. But you would still find, even if you read only a small portion of the available books on the subject, a very great range of reference. You would find, for instance, that love is said by some writers to consist wholly 
in acquisitive desire, usually sexual desire. That is, love is merely a name for the attraction that almost all animals feel toward members of the opposite sex. But you would also find other authors who maintain that love, properly speaking, contains no acquisitive desire whatever, and consists in pure benevolence. Do acquisitive desire and benevolence have anything in common? Considering that acquisitive desire always implies wanting some good for oneself, while benevolence implies wanting a good for someone else. At least acquisitive desire and benevolence share a common note of tendency, of desire in some very abstract sense of the term. But your investigation of the literature of the subject would soon uncover writers who conceive of the essence of love as being cognitive rather than appetitive. Love, these writers maintain, is an intellectual act, not an emotional one. In other words, knowing that another person is admirable always precedes desiring him or her in either of the two senses of desire. Such authors do not deny that desire enters into the picture, but they do deny that desire should be called love. Let us suppose, in fact we think it can be done, that you are able to identify some common meaning in these various conceptions of human love. Even then, not all of your problems are solved. Consider the ways in which love manifests itself between and among human beings. Is the love that a man and woman have for each other the same when they are courting as when they are married, the same when they are in their twenties as when they are in their seventies? Is the love that a woman has for her husband the same as that she has for her children? Does a mother's love for her children change as they grow up? Is the love of a brother for his sister the same as his love for his father? Does a child's love for its parents change as he or she grows? Is the love that a man has for a woman, either his wife or some other, the same as the friendship he feels for another man? And does it make a difference what relationship he has with the man, such as one with whom he goes bowling, one with whom he works, and one whose intellectual company he enjoys? Does the fact that love and friendship are different words mean that the emotions they name, if that is in fact what they name, differ? Can two men of different ages be friends? Can they be friends if they are markedly different in some other respect, such as possession of wealth or degree of intelligence? Can women be friends at all? Can brothers and sisters be friends? or brother and brother, or sister and sister. Can you retain a friendship with someone you either borrow money from or lend it to? If not, why not? Can a boy love his teacher? Does it make a difference whether the teacher is male or female? If humanoid robots existed, could human beings love them? If we discovered intelligent beings on Mars or some other planet, could we love them? Can we love someone we have never met, like a movie star or the president? If we feel that we hate someone, is that really an expression of love? These are just a few of the questions that would be raised by your reading of even a part of the standard expository literature of love. There are many other questions that could be asked. However, we think we've made the point. A curious paradox is involved in any project of syntopical reading 
although this level of reading is defined as the reading of two or more books on the same subject, which implies that the identification of the subject matter occurs before the reading begins, it is in a sense true that the identification of the subject matter must follow the reading, not precede it. In the case of love, you might have to read a dozen or a hundred works before you could decide what you were reading about. And when you had done that, you might have to conclude that half of the works you had read were not on the subject at all. The Role of Inspection in Syntopical Reading We have stated more than once that the levels of reading are cumulative, that a higher level includes all of those that precede or lie below it. It is now time to explain what that means in the case of syntopical reading. You will recall that in explaining the relationship between inspectional reading and analytical reading, we pointed out that the first two steps in inspectional reading, first skimming and second superficial reading, anticipated the first two steps of analytical reading. Skimming helps to prepare you for the first step of analytical reading, in the course of which you identify the subject matter of whatever you are reading, state what kind of book it is, and outline its structure. Superficial reading, while it is also helpful in that first step of analytical reading, is primarily a preparation for the second step, when you are called upon to interpret a book's contents by coming to terms with the author, stating his propositions, and following his arguments. In a somewhat analogous fashion, both inspectional and analytical reading can be considered as anticipations or preparations for syntopical reading. It is here, in fact, that inspectional reading comes into its own as a major tool or instrument for the reader. Let us suppose once more that you have a bibliography of a hundred or so titles, all of which appear to be on the subject of love. If you read every one of them analytically, you would not only end up with a fairly clear idea of the subject that you were investigating, the same subject of the syntopical reading project, but you would also know which, if any of the books you had read, were not on that subject and thus irrelevant to your needs. But to read a hundred books analytically might well take you ten years. If you were able to devote full time to the project, it would still take many months. Some shortcut is obviously necessary, in the face of the paradox we have mentioned concerning syntopical reading. That shortcut is provided by your skill in inspectional reading. The first thing to do when you have amassed your bibliography is to inspect all of the books on your list. You should not read any of them analytically before inspecting all of them. Inspectional reading will not acquaint you with all of the intricacies of the subject matter or with all of the insights that your authors can provide, but it will perform two essential functions. First, it will give you a clear enough idea of your subject so that your subsequent analytical reading of some of the books on the list is productive. And second, it will allow you to cut down your bibliography to a more manageable size. We can hardly think of any advice that would be more useful for students, especially graduate and research students, than this, if they would only heed it. In our experience, a certain number of students at those advanced levels of schooling have some capability of reading actively and analytically. There may not be enough of them, and they may be far from perfect readers, but they at least know how to get at the meat of a book, to make reasonably intelligible statements about it, and to fit it into a plot or plan of their subject matter. 
but their efforts are enormously wasteful, because they do not understand how to read some books faster than others. They spend the same amount of time and effort on every book or article they read. As a result, they do not read those books that deserve a really good reading as well as they deserve, and they waste time on works that deserve less attention. The skillful inspectional reader does more than classify a book in his mental card catalogue and achieve a superficial knowledge of its contents. He also discovers, in the very short time it takes him to inspect it, whether the book says something important about his subject or not. He may not yet know what that something is, precisely. That discovery will probably have to wait for another reading. But he has learned one of two things. Either the book is one to which he must return for light, or it is one that, no matter how enjoyable or informative, contains 